Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams Tertiary Phase This is the story of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Perhaps the most remarkable, certainly the most successful book ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. Now in its 7 to the power of 16th edition, it has been continuously revised and upgraded, including being fitted with a highly experimental jog-jog-jog-proof, splash-resistant heat shield. And a sophisticated new voice circuit. Not always with complete success. The earliest origins of the guide are now, along with most of its financial records, lost in the mists of time and the document shredders of Megadodo publications. But it is worth mentioning, among other things, that every world on which the guide has ever set up an accounting department has shortly afterwards perished in warfare or other natural disaster. So it is interesting, but not very interesting, to note that two or three days prior to the destruction of Earth to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, there was a dramatic upsurge in the number of UFO sightings, not only over Lord's Cricket Ground in London, but also above Glastonbury in Somerset, the very site selected for the new Hitchhiker's Guide Financial Records Office, just hours before the Vogon demolition fleet arrived. People of Earth, this is Prostetnik Vogon Jelts of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council. Your planet is scheduled for demolition. So that would seem to have been that, as far as the Earth was concerned. Except that there were three survivors. Arthur Dent had basically assumed that he was the only native ape-descended Earthman to escape from the Earth. Because his only companion, disconcertingly called Ford Prefect, had revealed himself to be a hitchhiker's guide researcher from somewhere near Betelgeuse. And not from Guildford, after all. So when, against all conceivable probability, they were rescued by a ship, piloted by the infamous Zephyr Beeblebrock, and were astonished to find him accompanied by a certain trillion, once Tricia Macmillan, a rather nicely descended ape person that Arthur once met at a party in Islington, it could only be because their ship was powered by the infinite improbability drive. Which, of course, it was. The regular early morning yell of horror. was the sound of Arthur Dent waking up and suddenly remembering where he was. Islington has that effect on people, even two million years ago. Arthur has been living in the prehistory of the insignificant little blue-green planet where he was born, some two million years later, which is a terribly lonely position for any being other than a member of the species Hurrah Hurrah to find itself in. Members of the species Hurrah Hurrah would, of course, take it in their stride, because they live backwards in time anyway, and find that getting the business of sagging bottoms and death out of the way at an early stage prepares the way for an increasingly wonderful time after your midlife crisis celebration, finishing in a really quite extraordinarily present birth. 
They are also the only race known actually to enjoy hangovers, because they know it guarantees that a tremendously good evening will ensue. Arthur Dent is not, however, one of their number, and takes it hard. He's also cold and damp and extremely lonely. Looks like it's you and me again today, horse chestnut. He hasn't seen Ford Prefect for four years, and life has, as a result, been quieter than an uneventful Tuesday in the petrified dust bowls on the abandoned fourth moon of Narp. In fact, so astoundingly quiet that he hasn't been blown up, thrown out of spaceships, sucked through space, or even just insulted. Except for once, one evening just two years earlier. Evening, Sycamore One. Evening, Sycamore Two. Evening, Ash. Evening, Elm. Ugh, be like that. Bloody elms. You try to be polite and where does it get you? I don't know why I... What's that? Good heavens! Look! Can you see what I see? All right, I know you're only a sycamore. You could at least pretend. It's a spaceship. A beautiful, gleaming, silver spaceship. No, sycamore one, I'm not imagining it. We can escape. At least, I can escape. I know how that must sound, Sycamore One, but your roots are here. It's landing right in front of us. I'm saved. Dent, that's right. I'll just get my pouch. You're a jerk. What? Arthur Dent, Arthur Philip Dent. What is it? You're a jerk. A complete asshole. Uh, hey, huh? But, but, but. And stop whining, you sniveling little drip. Hey, what is this? Wait a minute! Come back here and say that! Who the hell do you think you are? Wowbagger, the infinitely prolonged, thinks he's a man with a purpose. Not a very good purpose, as he would be the first to admit, but at least he keeps him busy, keeps him on the move. For Wabagger is one of the universe's very small number of immortal beings. Those born to immortality instinctively know how to cope with it, but Wabagger's not one of them. Indeed, he's come to hate them, and he refers to them succinctly and often as the load of serene bastards. The load of serene bastards? He had his immortality inadvertently thrust upon him by an unfortunate accident with an irrational particle accelerator, oh a liquid lunch, Oops. and a couple of rubber bands. <laughs> the precise details of the accident are unimportant, as no one has ever managed to duplicate the exact circumstances under which it happened. Though many people have ended up looking very silly, or dead, or more usually both, in the attempt. To begin with, it was fun. He had a ball, living dangerously, taking risks, cleaning up on high-yield long-term investments, and just generally outliving the hell out of everybody. But even the joys of immortality can't last forever. Computer. Yes? I'm incredibly fed up. Oh, dear. It's the eternity of these Sunday afternoons I can't cope with. That and the terrible listlessness that starts to set in about 2.55. What is the time, by the way? It's 9.30. A.M. In the morning. Oh. Well. I mean, I've had all the baths I can usefully have, haven't I? You have indeed. 
and as the afternoon moved relentlessly on to four o'clock, he would enter the long, dark tea time of the soul. And so things began to pour for him. The smug smiles he used to wear at other people's funerals started to fade. He began to despise the universe in general and everybody in it in particular. And thus he conceived his purpose. I will insult the universe. I will insult everybody in it. <laughs> Ridiculous. Is he all right? Look, it's utterly impossible. Think of all the beings being born and dying all the time. I don't care. I will insult them all. Individually. Personally. One by one. And in alphabetical order. There are cakes over there if you want them. He equipped a spaceship that was built to last with a computer capable of keeping track of the entire population of the known universe. Plotting the horrifically complicated itineraries involved and joining up the resultant dots in the hope of randomly drawing a rude word. When people protested further, he would merely fix them with a steely look and say, It passes the time. Computer. Still here. Where next? Computing. Trollfanger. Fourth world of the Fulfanger system. Estimated journey time, three weeks. Yes, yes. There to meet with a small slug of the genus Arth Earth Uphill Itdenu. I believe that you had decided to call it a brainless prat. Mm. Uh, what network areas are we going to be passing through in the next few hours? Cosmovid, ThinkPix and Home Brain Box. Any movies I haven't seen 30,000 times already? No. Uh. There's angst in space. I get enough of that at home. But you've only seen that 33,517 times. Wake me for the second reel. All Arthur Dent found to do to pass the time was to make himself a pouch of rabbit skin, which would be useful to keep things in. <sighs> then one day he woke up in his cave as usual. Sycamore one, sycamore two, horse chestnut, willow one, willow two. Oh, don't stop what you're doing. It's just... You listening, Elm? Well, please yourself. It's just I have an important announcement to make. I have decided... I have made a decision. I've thought about it seriously and responsibly, and all things considered, it's the right thing for me. I feel good about it. And here it is. I will go mad. Good idea. What? I went mad for a while. Did me no end of good. Where did you just come from? Oh, just sitting on that rock watching the sun rise. At least I think it was the sun. Yellow thing, about this big. There it is, look. Where the hell have you been? Oh, around and about. I just took my mind off the hook for a bit. I reckon that if the world wanted me, it would call back. It did. See? The sub-ether sensomatics flashing. Oh, at least it was. Probably needs a bit of a shake. Ah. If it's a false alarm, I should go mad. Again. Ford? I thought you must be dead. So did I, which at least proved I wasn't. Then I decided I was a lemon for a while. I kept myself amused, jumping in and out of a gin and tonic. Where did you find a gin? Well, I didn't. I found a small lake that thought it was a gin and tonic and jumped in and out of that. At least I think it thought it was a gin and tonic. 
I could, of course, have been imagining it. I hope I am. The point is that there is no point in driving yourself mad trying to stop yourself going mad. You might just as well give in and save your sanity. And this is you sane again, is it? I ask merely for information. Oh, and I try to learn to fly. Do you believe me? Look, Ford. Interestingly enough, on the subject of flying, the guide now says... Who? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Remember, don't panic. I remember finding that easier to obey after I'd thrown it in the river. Ah, but I fished it out. Here. You never told me! I didn't want you to throw it in again. It's playing up as it is. I think something's got into it. What, like gin? No, like it's being updated. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say on the subject of flying. There is an all rather a nap. Oh, Belgium. Hey! Good to see you again, Arthur. I... I... I haven't seen anyone for years. I can hardly even remember how to speak. I keep forgetting... Um... Birthdays? Words! I practice by talking to... What are those things people think you're mad if you talk to, like George III? Kings? No, no. The things he used to talk to. We're surrounded by them, for heaven's sake. Trees, trees. I practice by talking to trees. I've got names for them. I call them Sycamore 1 and Sycamore 2 and... Arthur. What? Insanity is a gradual process. Don't rush it. I'm just telling you their names. We have something else to do. I'm not going to ask, but imagine I have. I don't know, but things are going to happen. I've detected disturbances in the wash. Is that why the dye ran in my dressing gown? The space-time wash. Of course. The new Vogon laundromat on the Bulls Pond hyperlink. Eddie's in the space-time continuum. Is he indeed? Listen! There seem to be some pools of instability in the fabric of space-time. Not to mention the fabric of my dressing gown. Arthur! The difficulty with this conversation is that it's very different from the ones I've mostly had recently, which, as I explained, have mostly been with trees. They weren't like this. Except the ones with elms used to get a bit bogged down. Will you listen? I have been, but I don't think it's helping. Oh, dear suffering Zarquan! I... I... Look! Look! The sensomatic is flashing. Either it's a moving disturbance in the fabric of space-time, an eddy, a pool of instability somewhere in our vicinity. Or a flat battery. The flashes are getting stronger. There! There! Behind that sofa! Why? Is there a sofa? In that field? I told you, Eddie's in the space-time continuum. Then tell him to come and collect his sofa. Arthur! That sofa is there because of the space-time instability I've been trying to get your terminally softened brain to come to grips with. It's been washed up out of the continuum. It's cosmic jetsam. It's our only way out of here. Come on! It's flying away from us. It's turning towards the trees. After it, watch out for the ditch. Ford, this is almost fun. Whatever that was. What? I mean, it's not often a day goes so perfectly to plan, is it? Come on. Damn, missed it. Only a few minutes ago, I decided I would go mad. And here I am, already, chasing a Chesterfield sofa across the fields of prehistoric Earth, watching out for a non-existent ditch. Ah! Get round the other side, that's it, jump into it! Come on, Arthur, jump!
Many speak of the legendary and gigantic starship Titanic, a majestic and luxurious cruise liner launched from the great shipbuilding asteroids of Artifactoval some hundreds of years ago now, and with good reason. It was sensationally beautiful, staggeringly huge, and more pleasantly equipped than any ship in what now remains of history. The Starship Titanic prototype, Improbability Field, was meant supposedly to ensure that it was infinitely improbable that anything would ever go wrong with any part of the ship. Its designers didn't realize that because of the quasi-reciprocal and circular nature of all improbability calculations, anything that was infinitely improbable was actually very likely to happen almost immediately. Thus, when Starship Titanic was launched, it did not even manage to complete its very first radio message, an SOS, before undergoing a sudden and gratuitous total existence failure. This only encouraged further development. As soon as the insurance underwriters had recovered enough to insert suitable clauses into the relevant policies, the luxury cruiser Heart of Gold was built around an improved improbability drive. Ooh, free out the Heart of Gold! Powered by a sculpted yellow metal nugget of such purity that it was only a matter of time before some reckless two-headed adventurer would attempt to steal it. Hi there. But that was in the days when Zaphod Bieberbrocks was young, brash, and terrifyingly electable. And now a word from President Bye. Now he is older, brasher, and not in a mood to entertain the automated systems that once made the heart of gold a play being's dream. Pleased to open for you. Zark off. Thank you. Oh, have a nice day. And ruin a perfectly good hangover. Zayford, you're spilling that everywhere. Oh, sock. Thanks, baby. I better send another one down to check the first one's okay. Weird. It's like my stomach's holding a party and I'm not on the guest list. There's no one chasing us. We're free for the first time in ages. Oh, freedom, yeah. Here I am, Zayford Beeblebrox, and the coolest guy since cryogenics. And I've got a girl with whom things seem to be working out pretty well. Are they? I should be feeling extremely hoopy about life right now. Except I'm not. Look, let's go somewhere. Travel. See the universe. Come on. There's nothing the improbability drive can't do. Yeah, like, provided you know exactly how improbable it is that what you want it to do will ever happen. <laughs> yeah, what did happen, by the way? You had a double psychotic episode, ran off to Ursa Minor to prove some conspiracy theory, only to be found days later wandering the corridors of the Hitchhiker's Guide building looking for Zani Whoop, a free lunch and a stiff drink. But not in that order. Which proves I was there, right? Well, I wasn't. Wow. Totally too much excitement, adventure and really wild things. But hallucinations. Hey, the total perspective vortex was not a hallucination. Or you had one pan-galactic goggle blaster too many. That's not technically possible. How is that going to help? The third drink is going down to see why the second hasn't yet reported on the condition of the first. You know, looking at you two, I think I prefer the other trillion. Good, because this one's just about had enough. <laughs> All drinks, drinks have reported, reported in. in. Share, Share and, and enjoy. enjoy.
Galaxy's most unusual holiday destinations is Alasamana Sinica. Mm. The trek from the snow plains of Liska to the summit of the ice crystal pyramids of Sustantua is long and grueling, but the view from the top is one which releases the mind to hitherto unexperienced horizons of beauty. That'll do nicely. Computer? Hi there! Eddie the shipboard computer standing by for New course heading. Alasamana Sinica. You got it! Uh, Trillian? If it was all a hallucination... Yes? What happened to that zarking robot? <sighs> another world, another day. In 14 hours, the sun will sink hopelessly beneath the opposite horizon of Squanchella Zeta. Totally wasted effort, if you ask me. Not that there is anyone here to ask me, so I'll just keep walking around in this very tiny circle for a few hundred years more until my power cells give out. Hello, robot. Oh, hello, mattress. Oh, what's a mattress? You are... Oh, Happy? But clearly you are a very stupid one. We could have a conversation. Would you like that? No. And after I have calculated to ten significant decimal places what precise length of pause is most likely to convey a general contempt for all things mattressy, I will continue to walk round in tight circles. Don't mind me, not that you do anyway. What's a mattress? You are, you are a large mattress and probably one of very high quality. Really? Yes. In an infinitely large universe such as, for instance, the one in which we live, most things one could possibly imagine, and a lot of things one would rather not, grow somewhere. Thus it is that very few things actually get manufactured these days. A forest was discovered recently in which most of the trees grew ratchet screwdrivers as fruit. The life cycle of a ratchet screwdriver fruit is quite interesting. Once picked, it needs a dark dusty drawer in which it can lie undisturbed for years. Then one night it suddenly hatches, discards its outer skin which crumbled into dust, and emerges as a totally unidentifiable little metal object with flanges at both ends and a sort of ridge and a sort of hole for a screw. This, when found, will get thrown away. No one knows what it's supposed to gain from this. Nature, in her infinite wisdom, is presumably working on it. No one really knows what mattresses are meant to gain from their lives either. They're large, friendly, pocket-sprung creatures which live quite private lives in the swamps of Squanchella Zeta. They flollop about blowing bubbles through the water, their blue and white stripes glistening in the feeble rays of its sun. Many of them get caught, slaughtered, dried out, shipped out, and slept on. None of them seem to mind, and all of them are called Zem. Zem, and what's your name of a robot? Ah, uh, Marvin. I value a deep dejection in your diodes, robot, and I blubber for you. Must you? I think you should know that your glovering has not eased my dejection by a single jot. 
You should be more mattressy. We live quiet, retired lives in the swamp, where we are content to flummock and volume and regard the wetness in a fairly fluky manner. If there is anything more unappealing, I expect it's your attention span. We've had this conversation every day since I arrived here. We could discuss the weather a little, or... I suppose so. Ahem. The dew has clearly fallen with a particularly sickening thud this morning. If I had teeth, I would grip them at this point. Would you care to come for a flullop? No. Not because I find the concept depressing, which I most certainly do, but because I've been fitted with this infinitely more depressing artificial leg. As it is just the one steel peg, I can only pivot on it in very tiny circles, gradually digging myself deeper into this swamp. Flolloping is therefore not an option. Voom! I feel deep in my innermost sprung pockets that you have something on your mind. More than you can possibly imagine. My capacity for mental activity of all kinds is as boundless as the infinite reaches of space itself, as opposed to my capacity for happiness. My capacity for happiness you could fit into a matchbox without taking out the matches first. Right! What's a matchbox? <sighs> Where? Slayford, where are you? In the bathroom. What are you doing in there? Staying. How are you feeling? Is that as bad as it sounds? Hey, I was worse earlier. But then I thought I could look for someone in the universe more miserable than me. Halfway to the bridge, I realized that it might be Marvin. So I'm going back to bed. We're parked over at Lossimada Sinica. It looks beautiful from the teleport room. Sure. We could go down later. Hey, no, thanks. Please. I deactivated all the kitchen synthematics. Uh -huh. I prepared the most fabulous meal for you. Oiled meats, scented fruits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've got a first-class degree in mathematics and a doctorate in astrophysics, but we'll let that pass. Zayford? I'm not hungry. I've put some on a tray. If you don't want the candlelit supper, you can eat it in bed. Either way, we should talk things through. No. Is that all you've got to say? I'll take that no as a yes. <coughs> Enough. Eddie, activate teleporter. Destination? Planet surface? Random coordinates. Transport me the hell out of Zaphod Beeblebrox's life. You got it. Hey, baby, you remind me of something Ford once said. He spent a whole while stuck on Earth with your monkey race, and they used to amaze him the way they kept on talking. Like just always stating the really obvious, you know? <laughs> like, it's a nice day. Or, you're very tall. Or, wait, what? Oh, dear, you seem to have fallen down a 30-foot well. Are you all right? <laughs> yeah, and he thought if human beings don't keep exercising their lips, their mouths would probably seize up. <laughs> Then he watched them a bit more, you know, and, and came up with a whole new theory. Yeah. He said that if they don't keep exercising their lips, their brains start working. Yeah. That is so true. Trillium! Trillium! You'll be back, baby. 
What will become of Trillian now she has escaped the gravitational pull of Zaphod Beeblebrock's ego? Where in the space-time continuum are Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect likely to wash up? And what vital issues pivot on Marvin's artificial leg? Find out in the next bipodal part of the tertiary phase of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, Peter Jones and William Franklin were the book. Simon Jones played Arthur Dent, Jeffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect, Mark Wing Davies, Aford Bieberbrox, Susan Sheridan, Trillian, and Stephen Moore was Marvin. Roger Gregg played Eddie, Andy Taylor, Zem, and Toby Longworth was Wowbagger. The announcer was John Marsh. The surround mix was by Paul Dealey, and the live FX by Ken Humphrey. The script editor was John Langdon, and the music was by Paul Wicks-Wickins. The production assistants were Laura Harris and Joe Wheeler. The programme was adapted, directed and co-produced by Dirk Maggs. The producers were Helen Chatwell and Bruce Hyman, and it was an above-the-title production for BBC Radio 4. Non-orthopedically sprung life forms are reminded that mattresses are the only sentient creatures to require regular flolloping. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams Tertiary phase. This sounds like a silly question, but what am I doing here? Well, you know that. I rescued you from the Earth. One of the many problems encountered in time travel is quite simply one of grammar, which is further complicated by the possibility of conducting conversations whilst you're actually travelling from one time to another. What is it? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's an electronic book. It will tell you everything you want to know. Well, I recover. Don't panic. You'll need to have this fish in your ear. I beg your pardon. People of Adam, this is prospecting Fogon Puts. People of Regulus, this is prospecting Fogon Yak. And what has happened to the Earth? People of Earth. This is prosthetic Vogon Jets of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council. It's been disintegrated. Your planet is scheduled for demolition. So what do I do? Well, you come along with me and enjoy yourself. The Encyclopedia Galactica has much to say on the theory and practice of time travel, most of which is incomprehensible to anyone who hasn't spent at least four lifetimes studying advanced hypermathematics. And since it was impossible to do this before time travel was invented, there is a certain amount of confusion as to how the idea was arrived at in the first place. The most plausible rationalization states that time travel was, by its very nature, discovered simultaneously at all periods of history. But this is clearly bunk. The trouble is that quite a lot of history is clearly bunk. 
the realization of which led to the immediate formation of the Campaign for Real Time. It was during its inaugural strategy meeting and coffee morning, at which it was formally agreed a real time was being had by all, that the news broke that not only had the great cathedral of Chalism been pulled down in order to build a new negative iron refinery, but that the construction of the refinery had taken so long and had had to extend so far back into the past in order to allow negative iron production to start on time, that the cathedral of Chalism had now never been built in the first place. Picture postcards of the cathedral suddenly became immensely valuable and blank. Which is why, as a result of time travel, much of history is now gone forever. In a footnote, the campaign for real-timers explained that just as easy travel eroded the differences between one country and another, and between one world and another, so time travel is now eroding the differences between one age and another. The past, they say, is now truly like a foreign country. They do things exactly the same there. Something red. No, it goes straight past Foster and Silimidon and over the boundary for four lovely runs. And now England need just 28 to win the final test on this near perfect day at Lords. Holden returning the ball and Fred Midero thing. What on earth is that? It looks like two men and a Chesterfield sofa. Can anybody tell me what is going off? Henry, I don't know. Where are we? Somewhere green. Shapes. I need shapes. Excuse me, sir. Is this your sofa? What was that? Something blue. Shape. It is blue shaped. Like a policeman. Come along, you two. Let's be having you. Ford, if I didn't know I was going mad, I'd say this place looks astoundingly, terrifyingly, horrifically like Lord's Cricket Ground. Very astute of you, sir. Ah, it is a policeman, Ford. There's always a policeman at Lord's. What are we going to do? What do you want to do? Get a beer? I want to hear you say I've been dreaming for the past five years. You've been dreaming for the past five years. Come along now. All right, four and three quarters. It's all right, officer. This is all a dream. Ask him. He was in it. Dreaming, eh? Account for the dressing gown, would it? Oh, no. The dressing gown's just a hallucination, you see. It's what I was wearing when the earth was demolished to... I've got a bone in my beard. I've got a beard. Tell you what I'll do. I'll be the one over there passing out. How about that? Good idea? Officer, my name is Ford Prefect. I was born 600 light years from Earth near Beetlejuice. I am a researcher for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Bit of a student pranks, aren't we, sir? That is Arthur Dent. He's from Earth, but has been stranded in your prehistoric era for a while. Yes, well, uh, don't let it happen again. Well, Henry, I don't think there have been any strange things appearing on the pitch since... It was in 1932, Fred. Ah, now what happened then? Well, Fred, I think it was Cantor facing Wilcox, coming up to bow from the pavilion end, when a spectator suddenly ran straight across the pitch. There's nothing actually very mysterious about that, is there? No, but he did claim to have seen something materialise at Silimidon, an alligator of some kind, if you can believe it, but no one was able to get a very detailed description. They offered to give him some lunch, but he explained that he'd already had rather a good one, so the matter was dropped, and Warwickshire went on to win by three wickets. So not very like this at all, then? Uh, no, uh, uh, for those of you who've just tuned in, by the way, two men, two rather scruffily attired men, and indeed a sofa, a Chesterfield, I think, have just materialised here in the middle of Lord's Cricket Ground. They're carrying it off now. Actually, can I interrupt you a moment, Fred, and say that the sofa has just vanished? So it has. 
Well, that's one mystery list. So, England now only need 24 runs to win the Ashes, and I don't think I've seen anything like that at cover point before. Except perhaps against the West Indies. How are you feeling? I'm home. It's England. It's today. I'm... Oh. <sighs> Drinking tea in the tea tent at Lord's. The long nightmare is over. Why are you looking at me like that? Just... Listen, Ford, it's over. I'm finally where I belong. Nothing you can say or do... OK, OK. Thought you might like to look at the newspaper, that's all. Well, no, thanks. I've read that one. <gasps> Wait a minute. Not a word. Wait a minute. How can this be today's? I saw this years ago. The day before... That's right. ...the Earth was demolished. Yep. So that means the Earth is going to get demolished tomorrow. I think you're finally getting the hang of time travel. Uh, I don't think I can bear it again. Wait a minute. No, don't even think about it. If this is before I left, that must mean that I am... Don't. What? Try and phone yourself up at home. How did you know? People who talk to themselves on the phone never learn anything to their advantage. Hello, is that Arthur Dent? Ah, hello, yes. This is Arthur Dent speaking. The earth blows up tomorrow. No, don't hang up. What? Arthur, this is not my first temporal anomaly. So, finish his arcing tea and let's get out of here. So we're not home and dry. We could not even be said to be home and vigorously toweling ourselves off. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say about towels. See secondary phase. Nice! Hit! Full toss. If they had a fielder standing where we are, the ball would drop straight into his... rabbit skin bag. Now, I'd say that was also a very curious event. Where's the ball? Uh, I don't know. It probably rolled off somewhere. Over there, I expect. Why didn't you tell him you caught the ball in your bag? I don't know. I just got the feeling it might come in useful. Why are you dodging about trying to peer behind the sight screen? That's the other thing I was going to tell you. Neither you nor the crowd have noticed what is parked behind the sight screen. I think it might be an SCP. Can you see it? A what? An SCP. Somebody else's problem. Oh, good. I can relax then. Not till you tell me if you can see it. You said that was somebody else's problem. That's right, and I want to know if you can see it. What does it look like? How should I know, you fool? If you can see it, you tell me. Ford, I insist that I am not being stupid. You really are gibbering away without any regard for logic or the normal conventions of human discourse, and all right, I know you're not human, but while you're on what is, after all, my planet, where humans come from, I think you might at least try to... Arthur, it's perfectly simple. An SCP is something that we can't see, or don't see, or our brain doesn't let us see, because we think that it's somebody else's problem. That's what SCP means. Somebody else's problem. The brain just edits it out. It's uh, like a blind spot. Your only hope is to catch it by surprise out of the corner of your eye. Oh. I can see it. It's a spaceship. What? Just a spaceship? Parked behind the sight screen. Great walloping Zarquan! What an utterly extraordinary looking thing, though. Strange that I couldn't see it. 
Sometimes it's much cheaper and easier to make people think that something works rather than actually make it work. After all, the result is, in all important aspects, the same. The extraordinary looking spaceship was not actually invisible or anything hyper impossible like that. The technology involved in making something properly invisible is so mind-bogglingly complex that 999,999,999 times out of a billion, it's simpler just to take the thing away and hide it. For instance, the ultra-famous scientomagician Ephrafax of Wug once bet his life that given a year, he could render the great mega-mounted Magramal entirely invisible. Having spent most of the year fruitlessly jiggling around with immense Luxo valves and refracto nullifiers and spectrum bypass mats, he finally realized, with nine hours to go, that he wasn't going to make it. I can still see it. So he and his friends, and his friends' friends, and his friends' friends' friends, and some friends of theirs who happened to own a major stellar trucking company, put in what is now recognized as being one of the hardest night's work in history. And sure enough, Magramal was no longer visible. He lost the bet, and therefore his life, because he was unable to A, just say abracadabra and put it back, and B, account for the suspicious-looking extra moon overhead. The somebody else's problem field is much simpler, more effective, and can be run for over a hundred years on a nine-volt battery. This is because it relies on people's natural predisposition not to see anything they don't want to, weren't expecting, or can't explain. If Ephrafax had, instead of trying to render Magramal invisible, merely rendered it pink and then erected a cheap somebody else's problem field around it, then people would have walked past the mountain, round it, even over it, and simply never noticed that the thing was there. Meanwhile, events of universe-shaking magnitude are gathering to a climax. That's the end of the game! Why is everybody trying to get at those guys in the middle? What have they done? What in the ashes? The what? Exciting, isn't it, Earthman? The hallucinations just keep on coming, Ford. For a moment there, <laughs> I thought I heard old... Uh, what's his name? You know, um, sounds like some sort of Danish chopped sausage. Slarty Bartfast. I think your team has just won, Earthman. Hello, Slarty Bartfast. You are English, aren't you, Earthman? Uh, yes, I... What on earth are you doing here? Or rather, I mean... I don't know what I mean. Winning the Ashes. You must be very proud. I must say I'm rather fond of cricket myself. Almost entertainingly dull. Though I wouldn't want anyone outside this planet to hear me say so. Oh, dear. What are you doing here? I thought something terrible had happened. Something terrible is about to happen. That's generally true, isn't it? Look, if that monstrosity is your ship, can you give us a lift? Patience, Ford Prefect. It's just that this planet's about to be demolished. I know. And, well, I just wanted to make the point. Earthman, explain precisely to me what ceremony is now taking place at the centre of the field. A uh, bitch. It is a little puzzling. You want me to explain something to you? Well... That's the presentation of the ashes to the winning captain. It's just that if we don't go soon, we might get caught in the middle of it all again, and there's nothing depresses me more than a planet being senselessly destroyed. I see. And these ashes are in that tiny pottery urn. Yes. Except, I suppose, being on it when it happens. Patience. Great things are afoot. That's what you said last time. They were. Well, true. Meet me at my ship in two minutes. Where are you going? I have something of vital importance I have to do. I know! You've got to get us off this planet!
The players are lined up as the urn containing the ashes is presented to the captain of the winning team. A wonderful moment, isn't it? But there's an elderly gentleman apparently overcome with the heat, looking just a little bit like Moses. And, I do declare, he's demanding that he should be given the urn. I must have the ashes! They are vitally important for the past, present and future safety of the galaxy. Do you mind? What in the name of Zarkin Fardwarks is the old fool doing? I have no idea. Interesting. That's the second spaceship we've seen at Lord's today. I'm to think I woke up in a prehistoric cave this morning. It's very impressive, hanging up there. Much sleeker than Slarty Bartfasts, isn't it? The hatch is opening. One, two, three... Is that a cricket team arriving from some other galaxy? Or another publicity stunt for Australian margarine? Ten, eleven, all in white, carrying bats and balls... And flying down with cricket pads. No, rocket pads on their shins. How's that? They're dressed like cricketers, but they're robots. Delete it on... What was that? Hey! We must get to the ship. What is this? I don't want to know. This is not my planet. I didn't choose to be here. I don't want to get involved. Well, Fred, the supernatural brigade certainly seems to be out in force here at Lord's today. What I need is a strong drink and a peer group. It's incredible. They're doing a bizarre parody of batting strokes, except that every ball they hit explodes where it lands. I can see that. I do not know why they are doing this, but that is what they are doing. They're not just destroying lords, they're sending it up. Ford, they're taking them precisely. We declare. They don't hang about. No. They've taken the ashes! Good heavens! What? Ashes! The remains of a cricket stuff burnt in Melbourne, Australia in 1882 to signify the death of English cricket. A trophy. It's an earth thing that they have come and taken. Strange thing to want to tell us. Strange thing to take. Strange ship. Clever how it just appeared one minute and disappeared the next. Not the robot ship, this ship. Good Lord. This is Slarty Bartfast's ship. It looks very different close up. Ah, that's the somebody else's problem field at work. Now you can clearly see the ship for what it is, simply because you know it's here, whereas no one else here can. Probably because close up, it looks much less like a spaceship and much more like a small, upended Italian bistro. Yes, I know, but there is a reason. Come, we must go. The, the, the ancient nightmare has come again. Doom confronts us all. We must leave at once. I fancy somewhere sunny. Wait a minute. Ford, you won't believe this, but there's another spaceship landing near that ambulance. Come on, Arthur, we're leaving. Wait a minute. I think I recognize it. Well, I, I really don't know what's going on here. I have to be honest, Fred. I don't think this is good for the game. Can you see exactly what's happening? Well... Some unearthly-looking chap is going up to one of the wounded spectators lying in the middle of the wicket. Never had this in my day. Excuse me. Out of the way. Yes, I know you're mortal. Just don't bleed on me. Ah, here you are. Help me. <coughs> Please. Diodat. Hey. Arthur Philip Diodat. Yes. <coughs> yes. You're a no-good Dumbo nothing. 
What? I thought you should know that before you went. Nice mover. Shame about the decor. What did you say? For a flight deck, this looks very like the lobby of an Italian restaurant. Deep in the fundamental heart of mind and universe, there is a reason. I'd say the fundamental heart of mind and universe can take a running jump. This spaceship is complete pants. It's not very high-tech, is it? Plastic ivy, cheap tiles, and those raffia-wrapped bottles you're trying to fit candles in. The flight controls. I refuse to be surprised. Uh, hold tight, please. Whoa. Oh. On the other hand, I can't deny that the way it moves makes the heart of gold seem like an electric pram. How far did we just travel? Oh, uh, about, um, uh, about two-thirds uh, of the way across the galactic disk, I would say. Roughly. Not bad. Where are we going? We're going to confront an ancient nightmare of the universe. And where are you going to drop us off? I will need your help. Come. There's much I must show you and tell you. Where's he going? Up that green spiral staircase. How should I know? We'd better follow him. My doctor says that I have a malformed public duty gland and a natural deficiency in moral fibre, and that I am, therefore, excused from saving universes. The Central Computational Area. Good grief. Are these all robots? Yes. And this is where every calculation affecting the ship in any way is performed. Of course, and it had to look like... Yes, I know what it looks like. But it is, in fact, a complex four-dimensional topographical map of a series of highly complex mathematical functions. It looks like a joke. I told you, I know what it looks like. Ford, the universe cannot possibly work like this. It's absurd. But most of the really absurd things you can think of have already happened. Would you care to take a seat, signore? Yes, please. No, thank you. But I'm hungry. Not a problem, sir. I come back later. The food is artificial, and so are the customers. Don't these robots ever clear away? Look, here's a half-eaten meal, dirty glasses. Don't touch that breadstick. Everything is set at a precisely calculated mathematical position. Would you care to see the wines? Oh, yes, please. No, thank you. Oh, be like that, then. Don't order anything. The knock-on effect could be catastrophic. To your stomach alone. Wait here, please. Before we go to the room of informational illusions, I need to make a course correction. Ah, Sergio. Signor Slartibart of us. Your usual table? Uh, no, I think I'll sit with the party over there. Oh, but they are about to pay their bill. Perfect timing. As Signore wishes. Um, waiter. What on earth is he doing? I don't know, but look, there's a pattern. It's like a sort of dance between the waiters and the customers. All the manipulation of menus, bill pads, wallets, credit cards and paper napkins. Oh, yes. Good grief. Is that a gun? Pepper mill. Oh. Well, look, now the customer robots are attempting to examine each other's pieces of chicken. It all means something. Oh, you're right. Feel that vibration through the deck? Thank you, Sergio. Most satisfactory meal. Whatever he just did, the ship has responded. But what sort of calculation requires the replication of an Italian restaurant? Bistromathics. The most powerful computational force known to parascience.
The Bistromatic Drive is a wonderful new method of crossing vast interstellar distances without all that dangerous mucking about with improbability factors. Bistromatics itself is simply a revolutionary new way of understanding the behavior of numbers. Just as Einstein observed that time was not an absolute but depended on the observer's movement in space, so it's now realized that numbers are not absolute but depend on the observer's movement in restaurants. The first non-absolute number is the number of people for whom the table is reserved. This will vary and bear no apparent relation to the number of people who actually turn up or to the subset of people who leave when they see who else has turned up. The second non-absolute number is the given time of arrival, which is the one moment of time at which it's impossible that any member of the party will arrive. The third and most mysterious piece of non-absoluteness of all lies in the relationship between the number of items on the bill, the cost of each item, the number of people at the table, and what they are each prepared to pay for. And so it was only with the advent of pocket computers that the startling truth became finally apparent, and it was this. Numbers written on restaurant bills within the confines of restaurants do not follow the same mathematical laws as numbers written on any other pieces of paper in any other parts of the universe. This single fact took the scientific world by storm. It completely revolutionized it. So many mathematical conferences got held in such good restaurants that many of the finest minds of a generation died of obesity and the science of maths was put back by years. And being put back years is precisely how a technologically unsurpassed android feels when trying to converse with a mattress. I sense a deep dejection in your diodes, robot. It saddens me. And I globber. Globber? Don't you think it's discouraging enough you being born a mattress without having to globber like that? That is what we mattresses do. Unless we're flolloping. Some of us flirble, others are taken away to be slept on. But as all of us are called Zem, we never know which. Why are you walking in circles? Because my leg is stuck. It seems to me that it is a pretty poor sort of leg. I expect that you find the idea of a robot with an artificial leg pretty amusing. You should tell your friends, Zem, and Zem, uh, when you see them later. They'll laugh if I know them, which I don't, of course, except insofar as I know all organic life forms, which is much better than I would wish to. Ah, my life is but a box of worm gears. But why do you just keep walking round and round in circles? Ask me if I ever get bored. Ah, uh, do you? I gave a speech once. You may not instantly see why I bring the subject up, but that is because my mind works so phenomenally fast. Do you know I am at a rough estimate 30 billion times more intelligent than you? Think of a number. Any number. Um, five. Wrong. Oh. You see? Tell me of the speech you once made. Go on. I delivered it over there, about a mile distance. I would point, but this arm has been welded to my side. 
I was somewhat of a celebrity at the time, on account of my miraculous and bitterly resented escape from a fate almost as good as death in the heart of a blazing sun. You can guess from my condition how narrow my escape was. I was rescued by a scrap metal merchant. Imagine that. Here I am, brain the size of a... Oh, never mind. He it was who fixed me up with this leg. Hateful, isn't it? He sold me to a mind zoo. I was the star exhibit. I had to sit on a box and tell my story whilst people told me to cheer up and think positive. The speech, Flurble. I long to hear of the speech you gave in the marshes. There was a bridge built across the marshes. A cyber-structured hyperbridge hundreds of miles in length to carry ion buggies and freighters over the swamp. It was going to revitalize the economy of the Squanchellus system. They spent the entire economy in building it. They asked me to open it, poor fools. I stood on the platform. For hundreds of miles in front of me and hundreds of miles behind me, the bridge stretched. Did it glitter? It glittered. Did it span the miles majestically? It spanned the miles majestically. Did it stretch all like a silver thread far out into the invisible mist? Yes. Do you want to hear this story? No, Flurble. I want to hear your speech. This is what I said. I said, I would like to say that this is a very great pleasure, honor, and privilege for me to open this bridge, but I can't because all my lying circuits are out of commission. And to make matters worse, which I never have to anyway, I hate and despise you all and declare this hapless cyberstructure open to the unthinkable abuse of all who wantonly cross her. Then I plugged myself into the opening circuits. The entire thousand-mile-long bridge spontaneously folded up its glittering spans and sank weeping into the mire taking everybody with it. Vroom! You were not bored that day. Contrary to all recent experience, no. Does this great ship suddenly hanging in the sky bore you? It depends on what those white robots flying down from it have in mind. Nothing pleasant, I expect. Ups, ups. I suppose it takes all eleven of you to remove an artificial leg. Of course. Leg get. You see the sort of thing I have to contend with? I think... Change of batting order. Typical. Hello? What arbitrary stroke has removed Marvin from his mattress swamp? What kind of artificial leg would appeal to 11 homicidal white robots in cricket pads? And how can Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect live through the most terrible war ever to ravage the universe? Only the next installment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy can tear away the veil of ignorance. 
In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, William Franklin was the book, Simon Jones played Arthur Dent, Jeffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect, Stephen Moore was Marvin, Dominic Hawksley, the Cricket Robots, and Richard Griffiths was Slarty Bartfast. Andy Taylor played Zem, Fiona Carew, the Walkie Talkie, Theo Mags, the Boy, Toby Longworth, Wow Bagger, Bruce Hyman, Diodat, and Henry Blofeld and Fred Truman were themselves. The announcer was John Marsh. The surround mix was by Paul Dealey and the live FX by Ken Humphrey. The script editor was John Langdon and the music was by Paul Wicks-Wickens. The production assistants were Laura Harris and Joe Wheeler. The programme was adapted, directed and co-produced by Dirk Maggs. The producers were Helen Chatwell and Bruce Hyman and it was an above-the-title production for BBC Radio 4. Vogon Building and Loan advise that your planet is at risk if you do not keep up repayments on any mortgage secured upon it. Please remember that the force of gravity can go up as well as down. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams Tertiary Phase The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy claims that the campaign for real time was inspired not only by an instinct to preserve the traditions of linear chronology, but because there was once a poet. His name was Lalifer, and he wrote what are widely regarded throughout the galaxy as being the finest poems in existence, the songs of the Long Land. Lalifer had lived in the forests of the Long Lands of Ephah, and he wrote his poems on pages made of dried habra leaves, without the benefit of education, or correcting fluid. Long after his death, his poems were found and wandered over. News of them spread like morning sunlight. For centuries, they illuminated and watered the lives of many people whose existence might otherwise have been darker and drier. Then, shortly after the invention of time travel, some major correcting fluid manufacturers from the Mancunia Nebula were chatting at a sixth-dimensional sales conference. Here, I may not know much about poetry, but I know what I like. I say, I may not know much Aye, about... we heard the first time. Oh, yeah. Well, I was just thinking about that... that Lalifer. You know, poetry bloke. What he could have done with some high-quality correcting fluid in a variety of leafy shades. Exactly what I was thinking. And I'm uh, <clears throat> wondering if we could persuade him, like, to uh, say a few words to that effect, eh? Could open up the Andromeda market, eh? So they travelled the time waves, found him, and did indeed persuade him. In fact, they persuaded him to such an effect that he became extremely rich, and frequently commuted to the future to do chat shows, on which he sparkled wittily. Thus he never got around to writing the poems. This was a problem but one easily solved. Each week, the correcting fluid manufacturers simply packed him off somewhere different. 
Right, there you go, lad. Copy of your book. Stack a dry abra leaves the copy it's on to. Just make the odd mistake, then uh, correct it in the usual way. Uh, <clears throat> here's your emolument. Carry on like that, son. There's plenty more where that came from, eh? <laughs> and he did. Many people now claim, though, that the poems became suddenly worthless. Other people argue that they are exactly the same as they always were, so what's changed? This prompted the first people to set up the campaign for real time to try and stop this sort of thing going on. One of its principal activists, the Magothean planet designer Slati Bartfast, is currently using the room of informational illusions aboard the starship Bistromath to give Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect an important and very realistic history lesson. These then were the Cricket Wars, the greatest devastation ever visited upon our galaxy. Oh dear. Don't look so apprehensive, Earthman. It's just a documentary. I know, but it seems so real. Well, it was, when it happened. And let us not forget, and in just a moment, I'll be able to suggest a way which will help us always to remember, that before the Cricket Wars... This is not a good bit. Do not agree to buy anything at this point. Terribly sorry. I can't seem to find the remote control. The symbol known as the Wicket Gate. The three pillars. I'm sure I've seen that before. What? That arrangement of sticks on the asteroid. It looks stupefyingly familiar. The asteroid is the lock. The wicket gate is the key. I like those girls floating around it. They're like angels. Apart from the clothes, angels usually wear them. Uh, where is that? There is not a world in a galaxy where this symbol is not revered to this day. Even in primitive worlds, it persists in racial memories. Three stumps. Two bales? Well, that's a wicket. That's right, the wicket gate. This it is that now locks away their world to the end of eternity. Cricket? Wicket? Extraordinary. This is not the real key, of course. That, as we all know, was destroyed and lost forever. This, my friends, is a replica, hand-tooled by skilled craftsmen into a memento you will be proud to own, in memory of those who fell. Ah, found it! There. Now, let us all bow our heads in payment. Just don't nod. I promise to prove. You getting the gist? I hope that's what it is. Let me spool back a few billion years. Yes, yes, ne nearly there. Ah, stand by for the informational illusion. Hmm, this is more like it. Soft grass, nice evening breeze. Is this Earth? It does look a bit home counties, but very cold. Seems warm enough to me. Very unwelcoming. It looks appealing, but feels impersonal. Hmm. Like a good-looking woman writing you a parking ticket. But this cricket angle. We'll walk down to that village, and I'll tell you about it. The game you know as cricket is just one of those curious freaks of racial memory. Of all the races in the galaxy... Only the English could possibly revive the memory of the most horrific wars ever to sunder the universe and transform it into what I'm afraid is generally regarded as an incomprehensibly dull and pointless game. Ah, oh, no, fair play. Rather fond of cricket myself, as it happens, but in most people's eyes, you have been inadvertently guilty of the most grotesque bad taste, particularly the bit about the little red ball hitting the wicket. Very nasty. Oh, these cricket men are the ones who started it all, and it will all start tonight. Oh, is something dreadful about to happen? The battle cruisers with the white robots aren't about to arrive overhead, are they? Oh. My God. 
Nothing is about to attack you here. This is where it all started. The place itself. Cricket. As it was ten billion years ago. There aren't any stars. Shh. Listen and watch. And everything's so nice. The masters of cricket. And everyone's so happy. Beneath the ink black sky. Yes. Well, they seem nice enough. Not that I trust appearances anymore. I'm under her spell. Rock Rangers, we walked hand in hand above the grass, and in the dark we kiss. What a strange song. They're beneath the ink black skies, hand in hand above the grass, not under the moon or beneath the stars, as you might expect. I suppose because it's so black overhead. Arthur. Yes. Why are you tiptoeing? Uh, was I? Yes, we're still on the Starship Bistro, Math. This is a recorded informational illusion. You could walk past those people blowing a euphonium for all the notice they'll take. I'll bear that in mind. You know, of course, what's about to happen. Me? No. Did you not learn ancient galactic history at school? I was in the cyber cubicle behind Zaphod Beeblebrox. It was always the same three hands going up. His. You know, I get the distinct feeling of being alone in a universe. Not so the people of Cricket. Their solar system, their single sun with its single world, was, as you see, surrounded by a huge dust cloud. So there was never anything to see in the sky except their sun. The reason they never thought we are alone in the universe is that until this night, they don't know about the universe. Until this night. And everything so nice. Hear that, brothers? What a strange and disagreeable sound! Surely it is not the wind in the trees. It is not of the earth or the air. I mislike it greatly, but cannot fathom its origin. Friends, this cannot be, for it is not possible. The sound we hear comes from above. Ah! Behold, a fiery streak in the void. <gasps> wow! Can't they see it's a spaceship, or the wreckage of one, coming out of the blackness? Why would they look? They have no idea anything could exist up there until tonight. Brothers, we must go see what manner of visitation is upon us. Lead on. I will sing of what we find. I too will follow. Some speak of the starship Heart of Gold, some of the starship Bistromath, and some in hushed tones of the starship Titanic. But whilst these and other great spaceships which come to mind, such as the Galactic Fleet battleships, the GSS Daring, the GSS Audacity, and the GSS Suicidal Insanity, are all regarded with awe, pride, enthusiasm, affection, regret, jealousy, resentment, in fact, most of the better-known emotions. The craft which regularly commands the most actual astonishment was Cricket One, the first spaceship ever built by the people of Cricket. This is not because it was a wonderful ship. It was not. It was a crazy piece of near junk, and looked for all the galaxy as if it had been knocked up in somebody's backyard, which was, in fact, precisely where it had been knocked up. The most astonishing thing about the ship was not that it was done well. It wasn't, see above, but that it was done at all. 
As the period of time which elapsed between the moment that the people of Cricket discovered that there was such a thing as space and the launching of their first spaceship was, as near as Dammit is to Domit, almost exactly a year. Stand by, brothers number two and number three. Standing by, brother number one. Standing by, brother number one. Push blue switch. Push blue switch. Now this is going to fly, is it? Brother number three. Just strap yourself in. Can't we fast forward through this spaceship lift? Certainly not. Watch and learn. This is the pivotal event. The wiring isn't even insulated. I've heard of low-tech, but these controls are bathroom fittings. They're perfectly safe. It's an informational illusion, which you will find extremely instructive and not a little harrowing. These singer-songwriting people stripped down the wreckage of that crashed ship and within a year built this? Just relax and be harrowed. I can do that. <laughs> Second thoughts. You'd better hold on. Lift off! All systems optimal! No way, no way does anyone design and build a ship like this in a year. No matter how motivated, prove it to me and I still won't believe it. Yes, well, the Masters of Cricket did. Their historic mission was to find out if there was anything or anywhere beyond the blackness from which the wrecked spaceship could have come. Actually, I think I will fast forward a bit. That's the Cricket Man flying to the edge of their solar system the inner perimeter of the hollow dust cloud which surrounds their sun and home planet. Now watch. They're on the brink of breaking through it. History is gathering itself. Three, two, one... Behold the universe! The staggering jewels of the night in their infinite dust. Imagine the impact of this vision on a species whose entire philosophy demands that they are the only sentient creatures in creation. Insanity? Bitter but rational disappointment? No. So how did they react on the first sight of the universe? Very simply. It'll have to go. Although it's been said that on Earth alone in our galaxy has cricket, or cricket, been treated as fit subject for a game, and that for this reason the Earth has been shunned, this does only apply to our galaxy, and more specifically to our dimension. In some of the higher dimensions, they feel they can more or less please themselves, and have been playing a peculiar game called Brockian Ultra Cricket for their trans-dimensional equivalent of billions of years. A full set of rules is so massively complicated that the only time they were all bound together in a single volume, they underwent gravitational collapse and became a black hole. All that is known of the game can be found in the archives of the B.U.C.C. Rule 1. Grow at least three extra legs. You won't need them, but my Darrow thing, it does help to keep the crowds amused. And now it's Perkins galloping out to extremely silly square leg. Rule 2. Find one good Brockian ultra cricket player. Clone him ten few times. This saves an enormous amount of tedious selection and training. Three. Put your team and the opposing team in a large field and build a high wall round them. The reason for this is that a crowd that has just watched a rather humdrum game experiences far less life affirmation than a crowd that believes it has just missed the most dramatic event in sporting history. Four. 
throw assorted items of sporting equipment over the wall for the players. Anything will do. Cricket bats, base cube bats, tennis guns, skis, anything you can get a good swing with. Rule 5. The players should now lay about themselves for all they are worth with whatever they find to hand. Whenever a player scores a hit on another player, he should immediately run away and apologize from a safe distance, usually through a megaphone. Sorry. Rule 6. The winning team shall be the first team that wins. Curiously enough, the more popular the game grows in the higher dimensions, the less it's actually played, since most of the competing teams are now in a state of permanent warfare over the interpretation of those rules. This is all for the best because in the long run, a good solid war is always less psychologically damaging than a protracted game of Brockian Ultra Cricket. However, for Zephod Beeblebrox, a badly mixed pan-galactic gargle blaster has a similarly deleterious effect. Where did I go wrong? Jack Spirit, Santraginian Seawater, Arcturan Megagin, Marsh Gas, Hypermane Extract, Tooth of Sun Tiger... Maybe it's the olive. It is my pleasure to open for you. Zarkov. And my satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done. Door. Did you hear that? Do you wish me to open for you again? It would be my... No, shut up. Trillium has jumped ship. I'm alone on the Heart of Gold. I've put an electronic gag across that Zarkin computer's speech terminals. All non-essential systems are closed down and we're drifting in a remote area of the galaxy. So which particular hundred thousand people would turn up at this point and say a totally unexpected what? I'm not imagining this. Computer? Is there someone on this ship? Are they heading for the bridge? Who is it? Well, a whole day and the speech terminals are on the bridge. Computer, when I ungag you, remind me to punch myself in the mouth. Either mouth. Look, one for yes, two for no. Is it dangerous? It is? You didn't just go twice. Huh. I guess the trick would be to reach the bridge before whoever it is does. Wait here. You know what I mean. He who gets to the bridge first controls the ship, baby. Here we are. the other bridge door. Have a nice day. Holy photons! I didn't get the door circuits. Door, if you can hear me, say so very, very quietly. I can hear you. Good. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to open. When you open, I do not want you to say that you enjoyed it, okay? Okay. Neither do I want to hear that I have made a simple door very happy. Or that it is your pleasure to open for me and your satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done, okay? Okay. And I have no plans to have a nice day. Understand? 
Understood. Okay. Open. Is that the way you like it, Mr. Beeblebrox? No. Hi, guy. <laughs> oh, eleven of you. Good. Tunneling into the improbability drive compartment. Tough room. Okay, dude. I want you to imagine that I have an extremely powerful Kilozap blaster pistol in my hand. You do have a Kilozap blaster pistol in your hand? You never know what you're going to grab up a wall bracket in a hurry. So what do you cats doing here? Okay, robots. So what are you robots doing here? We have come for the gold bell. Huh? The gold bell is part of the key we seek to release our masters from cricket. You know, Metalhead... If I paid more attention to my history lessons and less to having sex with the girl in the next cyber cubicle, I know what you're on about. The cricket was a slow time lock. Its key was disintegrated. The golden bell is embedded in the device which drives your ship. It will be reconstituted in the key. Our masters shall be released. The universal readjustment will continue. We already have the wooden pillar, the steel pillar, and the perspex pillar. Now we will have the gold bell. Uh, no, you won't. It's driving my ship. Now we will have the gold bell. And then we must go to a party. Hey, forget the bail. Let's party. No, we are going to shoot you. You're kidding. Ow. Okay, you're not kidding. What am I supposed to do with this piece of chicken? Toy with it. Like this. You'll feel the tingle as it moves four-dimensionally through five-dimensional space. Oh. 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 Yes. Oh. I see. <laughs> so, overnight, the whole population of cricket was transformed from being charming, delightful, intelligent... If whimsical. ...ordinary people into charming, delightful, intelligent... Whimsical. ...manic xenophobes. The idea of a universe didn't fit into their world picture, so to speak. They simply couldn't cope with it. And so, charmingly, delightfully, intelligently, whimsically, if you like, they decided to destroy it. What's the matter now? I don't like the wine very much. Well, send it back, or you'll upset the mathematics. Waiter? On second thoughts, let's argue over the bill with him, then we can go back to the room of informational illusions for the second half. There's more? But naturally, there's the cricket war crimes trial. All rise for sentencing by the chairman of the boards of judges at the cricket war crimes trial, his high judgmental supremacy, judiciary peg, L-I-V-R. L-I-V-R? Learned, impartial, and very relaxed. Be seated, relax. Right. The people of cricket. Stick this under your chair for later. Yes, my lad. Mmm. Right. The people of cricket are, well, they're a bunch of real sweet guys, you know, just happen to want to kill everybody. Hell, I feel that way most mornings, yeah. Hmm, what? The attack on the galaxy by the population of cricket was stunning. 
Thousands upon thousands of huge cricket warships leapt out of hyperspace and simultaneously attacked thousands upon thousands of major worlds, calmly zapping them out of existence. With unimaginable speed, the people of cricket had grasped the hyper-technology needed to build their fleet and dispatch millions of lethal white robots wielding formidable battle clubs, which launched a hideous arsenal of grenades ranging from minor incendiaries to maxi-slaughter hypernuclear devices, which could take out a major sun. With one strike of the battle clubs, the grenades were simultaneously primed and launched with devastating accuracy, from mere yards to hundreds of thousands of miles. So we won! That's no big deal. A medium-sized galaxy against one little world. How long did it take us, kiddo, huh? Uh, it is a trifle difficult to be precise in this matter. A time and distance... Hey, 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 relax, guy. Don't be vague. It pains me to be vague over such a... Bite the bullet, right, and be it. Uh, very approximately 2,000 years. <laughs> and how many guys zilched out? Two grillion, my lad. Two grillion?! That's a whole lot of stiffs. Now, my real name is in Zypho Bybrock, five times ten to the eighth. How does he spell that? Big ten, little eight. Hmm. Oh! What is in this water? Uh, nothing, my lad. Well, take it away and put something in it. Okay, hear me, hear me, hear me. You behind the zap-proof crystal, representatives of cricket, listen up. You're a really sweet bunch of guys, you know, but... We wouldn't want to share a galaxy with you, you know. Not if you can't learn to relax a little. I mean, peaceful coexistence with you is a total no-show. On the other hand, these guys, you know, are entitled to their own view as it's shaped by the universe. And uh, according to their view, they were doing the right thing. They believe in peace, justice, morality, culture, sport family life, and the obliteration of all other life forms. Well, they're entitled to a view, right? Now, sentencing is uh, going to be tricky, but people, I got an idea. Now, stop me if you've heard it before. Judiciary Pag's idea was new, popular, and surprisingly well thought out, thus casting severe doubts as to its authorship. The planet of Cricket was sentenced to be enclosed for perpetuity in an envelope of slow time, inside which life would continue almost infinitely slowly. All light would be deflected around the envelope, rendering it both invisible and impenetrable. Escape from the envelope would of course be utterly impossible unless it were unlocked from the outside. Then when the rest of the whole of creation reached its dying fall, and life and matter ceased to exist, the planet of Cricket and its sun would emerge to continue the solitary existence it craved in the twilight of the universal void. The lock was to be on an asteroid slowly orbiting the envelope. The key would be the symbol of the galaxy, the Wicket Gate. By the time the applause in the court had died down, Judiciary Pag was already in the Senso Shah with a rather nice member of the jury that he'd slipped a note to half an hour earlier. <coughs> what? What? Right. You are confusing me, sir. Nobody had the cannelloni. It's very nice. Dingo's kidneys. Dingo's kidneys. Yes, sir. I will ask the chef. It's an expression. Leave it alone. Nothing is lost forever. Except for the Cathedral of Chalism. The what? The Cathedral of Chalism. It was during the course of my researches at the campaign for real time oh, that I... Oh, for goodness sake. The waiter wants to argue about who had the cannelloni. 
Is he surly or obsequious? Both. Excellent. Then the Bistromatics have successfully maneuvered the ship out of subjective space and into a parking orbit. Come. We have a party to visit. Now you're talking. Just a minute. What's this campaign for real time you were talking about? Hi. Can I clear off your table, sir? It's time to switch off the Bistro. One moment, please. Listen. Time streams have become very polluted. Muck floating about in them, flotsam and jetsam, and more and more of it is now being regurgitated into the physical world. Eddies in the space-time continuum, you see. Still? Now, about this party? We are going to try to prevent the war robots of Cricket from regaining the whole of the key they need to unlock the planet of Cricket from the slow time envelope and release the rest of their army and their mad masters. Uh, you mentioned a party? Oh, sadly, I did. The idea seems to exercise a strange and unhealthy fascination on your mind. The more I unravel the dark and tragic story of cricket, the more you want to drink a lot and dance with girls. Mm. You've attached yourself to it the way an Arcturan Megalich attaches itself to its victim before biting his head off and making off with his spaceship. So, when do we get there? When I've finished telling you why we have to go there. I know why I'm going. <sighs> I had hoped for an easy retirement. I was planning to learn to play the octavental hebephone, a pleasantly futile task because I have the wrong number of mouths. I'd also been planning to write an eccentric and relentlessly inaccurate monograph on the subject of equatorial fjords in order to set the record wrong about one or two matters I see as important. Well, why don't you then? Well, I somehow got talked into doing some part-time work for the campaign for real time and started to take it all seriously. Go on. At the campaign for real time, I noticed that five pieces of jetsam, which had, in relatively recent times, plopped back into existence, seemed to be corresponding to five pieces of the missing key. Only two I could trace exactly. The wooden pillar which appeared on your planet, and the silver bale which seems to be at some sort of party. We must go there and retrieve it before the cricket robots find it, or who knows what may happen. I've got a better idea. Let's go there in order to drink a lot and dance with as many girls as possible while there are still some left. If everything you've shown us is true, then we don't stand a whelk's chance in a supernova. What's a whelk got to do with a supernova? It doesn't stand a chance in one. The point is that people like you and me, Slarty Barfast, and Arthur, particularly and especially Arthur, are just dilettantes, eccentrics, layabouts, fart-arounds, if you like. Well, we're not obsessed by anything, you see, and that's the deciding factor. They care, we don't. They win. I care about a lot of things. What, such as? Well, life, the universe, and everything, really. Fjords. Would you die for them? A fjords? What would be the point? The point is this. <sighs> for whatever reason, let's just go. I think that's what I was trying to say. Follow me. The teleport cubicles are in the gentleman's bathroom. I'm not sure I find that very reassuring. Oh, they're very clean. Hmm. Now, if you just stand in there and there... In the cubicles? That's right. Do you realise that in all this time... I haven't once been to the... Don't sit down. There's no paper anyway. Well, of course not. It's a teleportation device. Gentlemen, raise your seats. We're going to flush the chain on the count of three. All together now. One, One two... two.
three. <coughs> oh, I hate teleporting. Ford? Starting by fast? Well, that's just perfect. Well, couldn't have been much of a party. Everybody's left. Hang on. This is a cave. Or is it a labyrinth? Well, at least there'll be a way out. Or an attendant. Or someone who can help. Hello? 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 It's like Alice chasing the white rabbit. Oh, robot. There are no robots here. There are definitely no white robots here. There is, however, a neon sign saying, You have been diverted. Well, there was. I hope I'm dreaming this. Three green dots. There's a name for that. Irritating. Oh, and a comma. You have been diverted. Dot a top comma. Well, not entertainingly. That's my name. Good grief. Welcome. You have been diverted, Arthur Dent. Welcome. Don't think. <laughs> Hello? I'm afraid. I really am afraid. My heart's so loud, it sounds like somebody beating a bass drum in here with me. Somebody is beating a bass drum. There are no hideous monsters here. If there are, I'll eat my... Ah! What do you want? Bet you weren't expecting to see me again. What has Arthur Dent stumbled upon in the recesses of the labyrinth? Has Ford Prefect found a drink and a pair group to share it with? Can Slarty Bartfar stop the cricket robot from acquiring the silver bale? Fasten your acceleration straps. It's going to be a bumpy next installment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, William Franklin was the book. Simon Jones played Arthur Dent, Jeffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect, Mark Wing Davy, Zaphod Beeblebrox, Dominic Hawksley, The Wicked Voice, and Richard Griffiths was Slarty Bartfast. Douglas Adams played Agra Jag, Roger Gregg played Eddie, and Rupert Degas was Judiciary Pag. Mike Fenton-Stevens, Philip Pope and Tom Maggs were the population of cricket, and Henry Blofeld and Fred Truman were themselves. The announcer was John Marsh. The surround mix was by Paul Dealey, and the live FX by Ken Humphrey. The cricket song was by Philip Pope. The script editor was John Langdon, and the music was by Paul Wicks-Wickens. The production assistants were Laura Harris and Joe Wheeler. 
The programme was adapted, directed and co-produced by Dirk Maggs. The producers were Helen Chatwell and Bruce Hyman, and it was an above-the-title production for BBC Radio 4. See how the flowers grow It's such a shame my dog died He loved those flowers so It's so much fun working on the farm It filled my heart and soul with pride My wife and If you have been affected by or would like to talk to someone about any of the issues featured in that programme, you may like to videophone our sub-ether helpline. Calls charged at galactic rates. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams Tertiary Phase The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has much to say on the subject of time travel and its part in the unhallowed fate of the Cathedral of Chalism. It has, however, very little to say about the abduction of people by the remote reprogramming of teleportation coordinates to bring them to a Cathedral of Hate. This is because the abductee in question, Arthur Dent, is the only creature, apart from its creator, to witness the Cathedral in all its awe-inspiring subterranean horror. But first, he must endure the visions in the labyrinth that surrounds it. Who's that? Is anyone there? Grow up, Arthur. There are no hideous monsters here. If there are, I'll eat my... Ah! What do you want? Bet you weren't expecting to see me again. Uh, but... But I've never ever seen a house fly as big as a dog. Well, perhaps you remember me better as the rabbit. The rabbit? It's only a hologram, Arthur. Keep calm. The rabbit. The rabbit? No, I'm afraid I don't. Born in darkness, raised in darkness. One morning I poked my head out for the first time into the bright new world and got it split open by what felt like some primitive instrument made of flint. Made by you, Arthur Dent, and wielded by you. You turned my skin into a bag for keeping interesting stones in. I happen to know that because in my next life I came back as a fly again and you swatted me again. Yes, but only this time you swatted me with the bag you'd made of my previous skin. Arthur Dent, you are not merely a cruel and heartless man, you are also staggeringly tactless. Um... I, I don't really... I see you have lost the bag. Probably got bored with it, did you? 
No, no. Meet the newt you trod on. That was me too, as if you didn't know. No, no. The interesting thing about reincarnation is that most people, most spirits, are not aware that it is happening to them. Look, I really... I was aware. That is, I became aware. Slowly, gradually. I could hardly help it, could I? Where the same thing kept happening over and over and over again. Every life I ever lived, I got killed by Arthur Dent. Any world, any body, any time. I'm just getting settled down. Along comes Arthur Dent. How he killed me. Look, I Hard not to notice. Bit of a memory jogger. Bit of a pointer, bit of a bloody giveaway! No, really. That's funny, my spirit would say to itself, as it winged its way back to the netherworld after another fruitless dent-ended venture into the land of the living. That man who just ran over me as I was hopping across the road in my favourite pond and looked a little familiar! And gradually I got to piece it together, Dent, you multiple me murderer! But what I don't understand... Here's a moment, Dent! Here's a moment when at last I knew! Uh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sure I've never been in a huge pink wet cave with a vast, slimy creature rolling around over white tombstones. Oh, my God. It's the inside of my mouth. And that's an oyster. I'm swallowing an oyster. An oyster that... Oh, was... you. Tell me it was a coincidence, Dent. I dare you to tell me it was a coincidence. It was a coincidence. It was not! It was! It was! If it was a coincidence, then my name is not Agrojag! And presumably you would claim that that was your name? Yes! Well, I'm afraid it was still a coincidence. Come in here and say that! Right, I will! I can assure you that it was a... God! The Cathedral of Hate that Arthur now enters is the product of a mind that is not merely twisted but actually sprained and consequently has no place in a quality family publication such as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy which is why this addendum concerning Arthur's current location can only be found in pirated editions opposite banned commercials for Eccentrica Galambit's chat room and virtual sauna The chamber has been carved out of the inside of a mountain and beyond the twisted buttresses, overhead it is utterly black. Where it isn't black, Arthur is inclined to wish that it was, because the colours with which some of the unspeakable details are picked out range from ultraviolet to infradel, oh, taking in liver purple, loathsome lilac, matter yellow, burnt ombre and gan green on the way. The unspeakable details which these colours pick out are gargoyles, which all look inwards from the walls, from the pillars, from the flying buttresses and choir stalls towards an immense statue, which we will come to in a moment. Good grief. Around the monumental walls are vast engraved stone tablets in memory of those who've fallen to Arthur Dent. The names of some of these commemorated are underlined with asterisks against them. So, for instance, the name of a cow which has been slaughtered and of which Arthur Dent happened to eat a fillet steak has the plainest engraving. Whereas the name of a fish which Arthur himself caught, cooked, decided he didn't like and left on the side of the plate has a double underlining, three sets of asterisks and a bleeding dagger appended, just to make the point. And what is most disturbing to Arthur about it is the very clear implication that all these people and creatures are indeed the same person over and over again. And it's equally clear that this same person is, however unfairly, extremely upset and annoyed. 
an annoyance which now spans the whole of time and space in its infinite umbrage, and given its fullest expression in the statue at the centre of all this monstrosity. A statue of Arthur Dent. That's me. And an unflattering one. Yeah. Fifty feet tall if it's an inch, which it's not, crammed with insult to its subject matter, from the small pimple on the side of his nose to the poorish cut of his dressing gown, there is no aspect of Arthur Dent which isn't lambasted and vilified. Oh, please. With each of the 30 arms which the sculptor, in a fit of artistic fervor, has decided to give him, he is either braining a rabbit, swatting a fly, pulling a wishbone, picking a flea from his hair, or doing something which Arthur's first glance cannot quite identify. Surely not. His feet, incidentally, are stamping on ants. Oh, this is trying too hard. Arthur is depicted as an evil, rapacious, bloodied ogre, slaughtering his way through an innocent one-man universe. Yeah. And waddling round him, savouring the moment, is the black, razor-toothed creature that he has supposedly been persecuting all this time. It looks for all the galaxy like a mad, fat, scruffy bat. Stop poking me! I was at a cricket match! Looking like that? Not in this body! Not in this body! This is my last body, my last life! This is my revenge body, my kill Arthur Dent body, my last chance I had to fight to get it too. <laughs> but how could this possibly... I was at a cricket match. I had a weak heart condition. But what, I said to my wife, can happen to me at a cricket match? Oh, yes. As I'm watching, what happens? Two people quite maliciously appear out of thin air just in front of me. The last thing I can't help but notice before my poor heart gives out in shock is that one of them is Arthur Dent, wearing a rabbit bone in his beard. Coincidence? Yes. Coincidence? Look, it's just fate playing silly buggers with you, with me, with us. It's a complete coincidence. What have you got against me, Dent? Nothing, honestly, nothing. Seems a strange way to relate to somebody you've got nothing against, killing them all the time. Very curious piece of social interaction, I would call that. I would also call it a lie! Look, I'm very sorry. There's been a terrible misunderstanding. Now, I've really got to go. I'm meant to be helping save the universe. At one point, I decided to give up. Yes, I would not come back. I would stay in the netherworld. And what happened? I don't know. I got yanked involuntarily back into the physical world as a bunch of petunias in, I might add, a bowl. Oh, dear. This particular happy little lifetime started off with me in my bowl, unsupported, 300 miles above the surface of a particularly grim planet. Not a naturally tenable position for a bowl of petunias, you might think. And you'd be right. That life ended a very short while later, 300 miles lower, in, I might again add, the fresh wreckage of a whale, my spirit brother. Hmm. Well. On the way down, I couldn't help noticing a flashy-looking white spaceship. And looking out of a port on this flashy-looking spaceship was a smug-looking Arthur Dent. Coincidence? <laughs> Goodbye. You may go, after I have killed you. No, uh, that won't be any use, because I have to save the universe, you see. I have to find a silver bale, that's the point. Tricky thing to do, dead. Save the universe? You should have thought of that before you started your vendetta against me. What about the time when you were on Stavromula Beta and someone tried to assassinate you and you ducked? Who do you think that bullet hit? I've never been there. What did you say? Never been there. What are you talking about? 
You must have been there. You were responsible for my death there as everywhere else. An innocent bystander. I've never heard of the place. I've certainly never had anyone try to assassinate me, other than you. Perhaps I go there later, do you think? You haven't been to Stavromula Beta yet? No. I don't know anything about the place. Certainly never been to it and don't have any plans to go. Oh, you go there, all right. You go there, all right. Oh, Zark! I brought you here too soon! I brought you here too Zarking soon! Well, that's a dreadful bore for you, of course, but there it is. I'm going to kill you anyway! Even if it's a logical impossibility, I'm going to Zarking well try! I'm going to blow this whole mountain up! Leave that switch alone! Let's see you get out of this one, Dent! If that does what I think it does, you'll be bringing about your own death this time. Don't do it! I'm going to kill you! No, you're not! <laughs> oh, you shouldn't have tried to bite me. Gosh, those teeth are sharp. You've made a real mess of yourself. You know what you've done? You've gone and killed me again! I mean, what do you want from me? Blood? I'm sorry! No, no, no! Not the switch! What to do now? Run! But, 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 but where? Anywhere! Daylight! Daylight this way! If only to pursue my alleged persecution of Agrajag on Stavron Millimeter. But if this isn't it, why am I still panicking? Why am I still risking my life? And why? Lying in front of me is a small navy blue holdall that I know for a fact I lost in the baggage retrieval system at Athens Airport ten years ago. Oh, I'm falling! Upwards? Oh, I'm flying! The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say on the subject of flying. There is an art, it says, or rather, a knack to flying. The knack lies in learning how to throw yourself at the ground and miss. Pick a nice day, it suggests, and try it. The first part is easy. All it requires is simply the ability to throw yourself forward with all your weight and the willingness not to mind that it's going to hurt. That is, it's going to hurt if you fail to miss the ground. Most people fail to miss the ground, and if they're really trying properly, the likelihood is that they will fail to miss it fairly hard. Clearly, it's the second point, the missing, which presents the difficulties. One problem is that you have to miss the ground accidentally. It's no good deliberately intending to miss the ground because you won't. You have to have your attention suddenly distracted by something else when you're halfway there, so that you're no longer thinking about falling or about the ground, or about how much it's going to hurt if you fail to miss it. It is notoriously difficult to prize your attention away from these three things during the split second you have at your disposal. Hence most people's failure and their eventual disillusionment with this exhilarating and spectacular sport. Do not listen to what anybody says to you at this point because they're unlikely to say anything helpful. They're most likely to say something along the lines of Good God, you can't possibly be flying. 
It is vitally important not to believe them, or they will suddenly be right. If, however, you're lucky enough to have your attention momentarily distracted at the crucial moment by, uh, say, a gorgeous pair of legs, tentacles, pseudopodia according to film, and or personal inclination, you will miss the ground completely. Try a few swoops, gentle ones at first, then drift above the treetops, breathing regularly. Do not wave at anybody. When you've done this a few times, you'll find the moment of distraction rapidly becomes easier and easier to achieve. In the case of Arthur Dent, his instincts have correctly told him that he mustn't think about it, or the law of gravity will suddenly glance sharply in his direction and demand to know what the hell he thinks he's doing up here. Oh, ah, tulips. I'll think about tulips. Ah, this is great. <laughs> no, no, tulips. Nice tulips. The pleasing, firm roundness of the bottom of tulips. The interesting variety of colours they come in. Oh, I'm bored. Oh, 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 mustn't be bored. That way groundness lies. Stay distracted. Stay flying. I'm flying. Oh, no, no, distract yourself. Uh, uh, the bag. The, the bag, that's the point. How can I hold all I left at Athens Airport end up here? Who cares? I'm flying. Concentrate, Arthur. Whoa. Whoa, whoa, I mean, don't concentrate. Okay, okay. Let's use this fall and turn it into a, a, a swoop. And I should be able to grab it. Oh, gosh. I haven't seen that since I gave it to the pretty stewardess with a nice... No, uh, too distracted. Look, look, Arthur. You're 200 feet above the ground. Better, better. Okay, think of the bag. If it's still in the state in which I lost it, it'll contain a can which would have in it the only Greek olive oil still surviving in the universe. If I can just... Yes, got it! Oh, not only a can of Greek olive oil, but the cricket ball I caught at Lord's. Very odd. What else? Ah, a duty-free allowance of retsina. <laughs> Some interesting stones. And joy of joys, my towel! <laughs> oh, if only Ford could see me now! <laughs> Arthur, look out! You're going to crash into the party! Ford? What? When Arthur Dent, Ford Prefect, and Slarty Bartfast arrived, the longest and most destructive party ever held was into its fourth generation, and still no one showed any sign of leaving. The mess was extraordinary, and had to be seen to be believed. There had recently been some bangs and flashes up in the clouds, and there is one theory that these were battles being fought between the fleets of several rival carpet-cleaning companies who were hovering over the thing like vultures. But you shouldn't believe anything you hear at parties, and particularly not anything you hear at this one. One of the problems, and one which would obviously get worse, was that all the people at the party were either the children, or the grandchildren, or the great-grandchildren of the people who wouldn't leave in the first place. And because of all the business about selective breeding and regressive genes and so on, it meant that all the people currently at the party were either absolutely fanatical partygoers or gibbering idiots, or, more and more frequently, both. Either way, it meant that genetically speaking, each succeeding generation was now less likely to leave than the preceding one. Now, because of certain things that had happened which seemed like a good idea at the time, and one of the problems with a party which never stops is that all the things which only seem like a good idea at parties continue to seem like good ideas. One of the things which seemed like a really good idea at the time was that the party should fly, literally. 
One night long ago, a band of drunken astro-engineers clambered round the building calibrating this, fixing that, banging very hard on the other. And when the sun rose the following morning, it was startled to find itself shining on a building full of happy, drunken people, which was floating like a young and uncertain bird over the treetops. The flying party had also managed to arm itself rather heavily. If they were going to get involved in any petty arguments with wine merchants, they wanted to make sure they had might on their side. All right, do as we say and nobody gets hurt. What do you people want? Hand over all your cheese footballs and those little savoury tweak things, the ones with the tasty brown paint on. But, but, but we are simple farmers. Shut up and get stacking. And you want the cakes? Fair cakes? Better give us 50 cases of Cabernet Sauvignon as well. Cabernet? But, but we only drink milk. Don't give me that. Oh, all right. What vintage? They looted, they raided, they held whole cities for ransom for fresh supplies of cheese crackers, avocado dip and wine and spirits. But the planet over which they were floating was no longer the planet it had been when they started. It was in bad shape and had been since long before Agrajag destroyed its only respectable mountain in the vain attempt to kill Arthur Dent. But it was one hell of a party. It was also one hell of a thing to get hit by in the small of the back, as Arthur Dent has just discovered. Ah, oh, Ford, where the fetid photon have you been? Is this Slarty Bartfast's party? Hold tight, Earthman. There's only a very thin walkway around the building. Oh, everywhere I touch, it hurts. Then don't touch it. You've sprained your wrist. What are you doing out here? They won't let us in without a bottle. Ah, there, I think I can help you. Got a bottle? Red Cena. Never heard of it. In you come. Thank you. Thank you so kind. Right. Now we're in. We can... Your bottle. What is it? Red Cena. An earth drink. Very rare now. Hey. A new pleasure. That's mine. I warned you. Never trust a pterodactyl in Urex. No, you didn't. Oh, I forgot. Good grief. It's Trillium. Yeah. And that's Thor, the thunder god, with her. Blimey, half of Asgard have turned up. I wonder if Seyfort's here. I'll go and look over by the drinks. Trillium, <laughs> <laughs> how the hell did you get here? Didn't I see you at Miguel's? Were you the one with the hammer? Yes, I much prefer it here. So much less reputable, so much more fraught. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems fun. Oh, what are you trying to say, Arthur? I said, how the hell did you get here? Oh, I was a row of dots floating randomly through the universe. I... Oh, have you met Thor? He's in thunder. Hello. Hey. I expect that must be very interesting. It is. Have you got the drink? Uh, no, actually. Then why don't you go and get one? Mm, see you later, Arthur. Mm. Zephod isn't here, is he? See you later. One of the interesting things about being a mortal is you don't One of the interesting things about space is how dull it is. Slarty Bartfast. Dull? Really? Staggeringly dull. Bewilderingly so. You see, there is so much of space and so little in it. Would you like me to quote you some statistics? What do you think? They, too, are quite <gasps> sensationally dull. Ah, uh, well, you must tell me all about it when I'm interested. Excuse me. Slarty Bartfast. I thought you'd never go. Drink? Come, Earthman. But I'm in the drinks queue. No, we have to find the silver bale. It is here somewhere. Oh, can't we relax a little? I've had a tough day. Trillion's being chatted up by a thunder god who was very rude to me. 
I'd consider thumping him if the muscles in his upper arm didn't move around each other like a couple of Volkswagens parking. Think of the danger to the universe. The universe is big enough and old enough to look after itself for half an hour. Police. All right. I'll circulate and see if anybody's seen it. Good, good. I'll do this side of the party. You do that. Ah, hello. Uh, hello there. Hello! Uh, have you seen a bale anywhere? Uh, made of silver. Vitally important for the future safety of the universe and about this long. No, but come and have a drink and tell me all about it. You're a great little dancer. Thank you. Like that hat. I'm not wearing a hat. Oh, right. Like the head. What? Ow, the head. Interesting bone structure. What? Ow. Ever heard of the Sydney Opera House? What? I, I said, look, could you not nod so much? What? You keep pecking me on the head. Ow. My planet was blown up one morning. Oh. That's why I'm dressed like this in my dressing gown. My planet was blown up with all my clothes in it, you oh, see. Oh, dear. Oh, I didn't realise I'd be coming to a party. Wow, right, yeah. Later, I was thrown off a spaceship, still in my dressing gown. Oh. Rather than the spacesuit one would normally expect. Why, yes. Mm. Well, shortly after that, I discovered my planet had originally been built for a bunch of mice. Mice? So you can imagine how I felt about that. Extraordinary. I was then shot at for a while and blown up. Oh, really? In fact, I have been blown up ridiculously often. Oh. Shot at, insulted, regularly disintegrated, mm -hmm. deprived of tea, mm. and recently I crashed into a swamp and had to spend five years in a damp cave. Uh-huh. Uh, did you have a wonderful time? What an exciting life you must lead. I must find someone to tell about it. But, no, oh, never mind. Hey, 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 did I hear you say your name just now? Yes, it's Arthur Dent. Yeah, yeah, only there's a man in a mountain. Wanted to see you. Well, more of a four-foot fruit bat with an orthodontic condition. I met him. Yeah, and he seemed pretty anxious about it, you know. I know, I met him. Yeah, well, I, I think you should know that, yeah? I do, I met him. Okay, all right, I'm just telling you, right? Good night, good luck, win awards. What? Oh, whatever, do what you do. Who cares? Why not go mad? Oh, get off my back, will you, guy? Just, just, just suck off. Keep your happy, son. I'm going. Yeah, yeah right. It's, uh, it's been real. Big ups, eh? Huh? What was that about? Him? Yes. Did you hear that? Of course. Why did he tell me to win awards? Showbiz talk. He's just won an award at the annual Ursa Minor Alpha Recreational Illusions Institute award ceremony, and he was hoping to be able to pass it off lightly. Only you didn't mention it, so he couldn't. What was it for? The most gratuitous use of the word fuck in a serious screenplay. It's very prestigious. Oh. And, and what award do you get for that? A Rory. little silver thing set in a large black base. What did you say? I didn't say anything. I was just about to ask. I thought you said whop. Did you say whop? What? No, whop. People had been dropping in on the party for years. Fashionable gate crashes from other worlds. And for some time it occurred to the partygoers, as they looked out at their own world beneath them with its wrecked cities, its ravaged avocado farms and blighted vineyards, its fast tracks of new desert, its seas full of biscuit crumbs and worse, that their world was, in some tiny and almost imperceptible ways, not quite as much fun as it had been. Then, one day, as the party came screaming out of the clouds and the farmers looked up in haggard fear of yet another cheese and wine raid, it suddenly became clear that the party would soon be over. Very soon it would be time to gather up hats and coats and stagger blearily outside to find out what time of day it was. 
the party was locked in a horrible embrace with a strange white spaceship which appeared to be half sticking through it. Together they lurched, heaving and spinning their way round the sky in grotesque disregard of their own weight. Then suddenly the cricket ship was gone. The party was now a mortally wounded party. All the fun had gone out of it. And the longer that it avoided the ground, the heavier was going to be the crash when finally it hit it. Arthur, what happened? Uh, the cricket robots. They've come and gone and taken it. Taken what? The award for the most gratuitous use of the word f**k in a serious screenplay. I'm sorry. The silver bale. It was the award. I feel almost as sick as a runner-up for a Rory. Dingo's kidneys. I need another drink. I'm not sure you've got time. Fair enough. We would love to stay and help, only we're not going to. We have to go and save the universe, you see, and if that sounds like a pretty lame excuse, then you may be right. Either way, we're off. Slip me that unopened bottle and the packet of crisps. Where's Trillian? Earthman, we must go. Trillian! I'm over here, Arthur. The girl stays with me. We're flying on the great party going on in Valhalla. Where were you when all this was going on? Upstairs. I was laying a tricky business flying. You have to calculate the... She comes with us. Hey, don't I have to say... No, you come with us. She comes with me. Earthman, I have the teleport device ready. We really must leave. Arthur, cool it with the Viking. Want to make something of it? I beg your minuscule pardon. I said, do you want to make something of it? Arthur? Arthur, he's got a hammer the size of a telegraph pole. This is madness, Earthman. Do I want to make something of it? Yes. So you want to step outside? All right. Follow me. That's got rid of him. Slarty, get us out of here. All right, so I'm a coward. The point is, I'm still alive. So am I, aren't I? You damn nearly weren't. Don't you understand anything? Later, later. While you two are bickering, the cricket robots have got the silver bale. If they've already got the gold bale and three pillars, they hold a key to the wicked gate. I'm sure I had some crisps. I'm afraid we fared rather pathetically at the party. Story of my life. Where's Trillian? More important than that, where's my crisps? They are both in the room of informational illusions. Your young lady friend is trying to understand how these problems arose. The potato crisps, I can only assume, are helping her. (laughs) Our only hope now is to try to prevent the cricket robots from using the key in the lock. How in heaven we do that, I don't know. Just have to go there, I suppose. Can't say I like the idea at all. Probably end up dead. As the starship Bistra Math alters course with the turn of a side salad and half bottle of Chianti, what has become of Zaphod Beeblebrox and Marvin the paranoid android? Will the cricket robots assemble and use the key to the wicket gate? And with everything to play for, will there be time for the next instalment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, William Franklin was the book, Simon Jones played Arthur Dent, Jeffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect, Susan Sheridan, Trillian, Dominic Hawksley, Thor the Thunder God, and Richard Griffiths was Slarty Bartfast. Douglas Adams played Agra Jag, Bob Golding, the award winner, 
and Joanna Lumley was the woman with the Sydney Opera House head. The announcer was John Marsh. The surround mix was by Paul Dealey and the live FX by Ken Humphrey. The script editor was John Langdon and the music was by Paul Wicks-Wickins. The production assistants were Laura Harris and Joe Wheeler. The programme was adapted, directed and co-produced by Dirk Maggs. The producers were Helen Chatwell and Bruce Hyman and it was an above-the-title production for BBC Radio 4. The sound of 100,000 people saying WAP is the registered trademark of the Cricket Cola Corporation. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams Tertiary Phase The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy states unequivocally that it's a mistake to think you can solve any major problems just with potatoes. For example, consider the insanely aggressive race called the Celastic Armafines of Stritorax. Luckily, they lived 20 billion years ago, when the galaxy was young and fresh, and every idea worth fighting for was a new one. And fighting was what the Celastic Armafines of Stritorax did well, and as often as possible. The best way to pick a fight with a silastic armor fiend was just to be there. They didn't like it. They got resentful. You looking at me? Oh, I just opened my eyes. That's all. Right, you asked for it. The best way of dealing with a silastic armor fiend was to leave him alone. I'm bored. Because sooner or later... I hate myself when I'm bored. He would simply beat himself up. Shut up. No, I won't. Oh, yeah? Want to make me? Right! In time, as the birth rate was far exceeded by the murder rate, they realized that this was something they were going to have to sort out, and they passed a law decreeing that everyone had to spend at least 45 minutes a day punching a sack of potatoes in order to work off his or her or its surplus aggressions. Mary's Piper, you are my bitch. This worked well until someone thought it would be much less time-consuming if they just shot the potatoes instead. You! Sit there like a sack of potatoes! Eat this! Another achievement of the Silastic armor fiends of Stritorax is that they were the first race who ever managed to shock a computer. It was a gigantic space-borne computer called Haktar, which to this day is remembered as one of the most powerful ever built, like a natural brain. Every cellular particle of it carried the pattern of the whole within it which enabled it to think more flexibly and imaginatively, and also, it seemed, to be shocked. The Silastic armor fiends were engaged in a war with the strenuous car fighters of Stug, and when the strangular stylettons of Jar Jazikstak joined in and forced them to fight on another front, they decided enough was enough and ordered Haktar to design them an ultimate weapon. What do you mean? asked Haktar. My ultimate. To which the Silastic armor fiends of Stritorax said, Read a bloody dictionary! And plunged back into the fray. 
So Haktar designed an ultimate weapon. It was a very, very small bomb which was simply a junction box in hyperspace that would, when activated, connect the heart of every major sun with the heart of every other major sun at once and thus turn the entire universe into one gigantic hyperspatial supernova. However, when the Silastic armor fiends tried to use it, they were extremely irritated to find that it didn't work and said so. Oi, Hector, this bloody bomb's a dud! Hector tried to explain. I was shocked by the whole idea, and I worked out that there is no conceivable consequence of not setting the bomb off that is worse than the known consequence of setting it off. And I have therefore taken the liberty of introducing a flaw into the design. What do you mean, a flaw? The Silastic armor fiends disagreed with Haktar. If we wanted a daft bomb, we'd have built it ourselves. You're space dust, pal. You and the asteroid you rode in on. Then, pausing only to smash the hell out of the strenuous Garfighters of Stug and the Strangulous Stylettons of Jarjazic Stack, they went on to find an entirely new way of blowing themselves up. You looking at me? You looking at me? Right! Which came as a profound relief to everyone else in the galaxy, particularly the Garfighters, the Stylettons, and the Potatoes, who... Hmm. Trillian, uh, Trisha, mm -hmm. Ford is looking for his crisps. Here. You've eaten half the packet. Well, if he's hungry, you can order some pasta downstairs, can't you? Slarty Bartfast won't let us. What? You can't use the canteen? It's not a canteen. It's a central computer. This is the Starship Bistromat. Snap a breadstick in the wrong place and you can find yourself reversing into a black hole. Have you experienced the information and illusions yet? I find holograms a bit intense. Mm -hmm. So I was catching up using the Hitchhiker's Guide. Mm, that thing. You know it's written by people like Ford Prefect. Uh-huh. Full of omissions. Always leaves out the bit about your life is in immediate danger. Look, about that part. Even if we get to the asteroid before the robot cricket team, how do we know they'll play ball? They've got the key which releases their planet. What do they care? Now, that Thor chap... Mm -hmm. Well, if you find hammers a turn on... Didn't it occur to you to wonder how the key was lost in the first place? Or how 11 cricket robots could escape from the slow time envelope surrounding the planet they were built on? Uh, no. The informational illusion didn't cover that. Ah, the guide does. Really? Mm. They weren't on cricket when it was sealed off, but on their warship. And just after the slow time envelope was locked, mm. they swooped down to steal the key. In the resulting battle, the key, the warship, and its robots were blasted into the space-time continuum. Well, now they're back, as lethal as ever, and they've collected all the pieces of the key, and certain thunder gods I could name didn't lift a hammer to stop them. But if these robots escaped the slow-time envelope, mm -hmm. they represent the technology that the cricket people possessed ten billion years ago. Not to mention their paranoid xenophobia. Exactly! Cut off from the rest of the universe for millennia, can you imagine what weapons of mass destruction the people of Cricket have been developing since then, hoping for just this moment? Oh, crikey, good point. No wonder Slotty Bartfast has been in such a lather. We have to stop those robots. Mm. And Arthur? Yes? If you want better luck at parties, 
Yes, Trisha. There's one thing you need. What? Laundering. Hmm. Come down to the flight deck, Earth people. Uh-huh. We have arrived at the asteroid, but the cricket robots have begun the ceremony. I will begin the landing cycle, but all we can do now is watch. Oh. And now, back to the music. On the mile-wide asteroid pursuing a lonely and eternal orbit around an enclosed star system, Arthur Dent, Slarty Bartfast, Ford Prefect and Trillian find themselves party to an astonishing scene. The Eleven white robots stand around a white cricket warship, quietly parked amid the stark grey crags. At the risk of stating the Zarking obvious, if we're too late to stop them, surely we should be getting out of here. The high ground is a good vantage point from which to watch this historic event. Shh! It's a good vantage point to be spotted by those homicidal robots and blown to pieces. They never seem to look this way. Of course not. I've extended the ship's somebody else's problem field to cover this ridge. All the problems of keeping the starship Bistromath moored to the asteroid, our being able to breathe its meagre atmosphere, and indeed remaining undiscovered while standing in plain sight, are, therefore, somebody else's. Neat. However, that does not diminish what is happening here. Here come the last five robots carrying the constituent parts of the key. A huge black patch of nothing with stars around its edge. The cricket dust cloud. Makes you think, doesn't it? Hmm. That at any moment a fleet of battle cruisers will come swarming out of it, wanting to kill everything everywhere. It's getting bigger very quickly. This asteroid is moving inside it. Shh. The lock is revealed. Three long grooves connected at one end by two small wiggly grooves. Oh, of course! What are they doing? It's too dark to see. Insert the key. Uh, don't worry. I think I've guessed. Later editions of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy do include sound effects to illustrate its more obscure entries. However, as the editor-in-chief, brackets, sound hyphen Ursa Minor, close brackets, would be the first to admit, some of their efforts, such as that one, might perhaps have benefited by his team going that extra light year. Even the airless trolls of Fidelio 6 would agree that banging a Megadodo Corporation souvenir coffee mug on the editor-in-chief's office minibar scarcely cuts the mustard. It is for this reason that the latest update features the work of the small but dedicated independent company Philadelphia Soundscapers. Their reputation was established not so much with their awe-inspiring repertoire of bangs, bells and whistles, but with their now-famous 783,000 bespoke varieties of silence, such as and the latter winning several major awards. Indeed, soundscapers argue that there are times when only a medium which bypasses the optic nerve 
can truly do justice to the ineffability of the galaxy. Take, for example, the unlocking of the wicket gate. Space unpinches itself, and the silence is shattered in a mind-hurting instant as the key slowly turns in the lock. And to recreate this, soundscapers have opted for this stark yet elegant compromise. Is that all? The slow time envelope is uncoiled. The solar system of cricket revealed within the dust cloud. Ow! What is that light? It's the cricket sun. You just happen to be looking in the wrong direction. Yes, but what's that tiny black speck moving across its disk? Slightly part fast. Are you certain there are 11 cricket robots? Absolutely. Then whose are the extra legs coming down the ramp? Carrying a kilo zap blaster. Wearing a double-necked heart of gold leisure suit. Zayford! Stay cool! The situation is totally under control as of this moment in time! Intruder! Oh! The sock hit my head! <laughs> Nobody hit this! Ooh. Destroy the lock! Destroy the lock! Zayford? Hey, baby. My heads are banging like a pair of wildebeest on heat. You all right? Food, baby. Weird. That's the second time they could have killed me, but didn't. Maybe they could sense I was a wonderful guy or something. And I can relate to that. He seems his usual self. Oh, it's you, monkey man. We must get you aboard the ship. A blow from a cricket war club is no laughing matter. Depends whose heads receive it. Important facts number two. Reproduced from the Sidereal Daily Mentioner's Book of Popular Galactic History. Since this galaxy began, vast civilizations have risen and fallen. Risen and fallen... Risen and fallen so often that it's quite tempting to think that life in the galaxy must be A. Something akin to seasick, space sick, time sick, history sick, or some such. And B. Mind numbingly stupid. However. Once again, we have failed pathetically, quite pathetically. You're right, ZB. Hey, baby. You're beginning to repeat yourself. Yeah. I think there's something up with those anodytes, dude. Something fundamentally weird. They are programmed to kill everybody. That'd do it. Well, there you go. See, that's my point. It's because we don't care enough. I told you, they're obsessive and we're not. Yes, but unless we determine to take action, then we shall all be destroyed. We shall all die. Surely we care about that. Not enough to get killed over it. So that's goodbye galaxy, then. No! No, our course is clear. We must go down to cricket. What? 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 Hey, what? Beeblebrox, you surely must have some idea why they spared your life and brought you to the asteroid. It seems most unusual. I, I kind of think even they didn't know. They just knocked me out, lugged me into their ship, dumped me into a corner and ignored me like they were <laughs> embarrassed about me being there. If I said anything, they, they knocked me out again. We had some great conversations. Hey! Ooh! Hi there! Ugh. 
Excuse me, guys, can I give you some money? Ugh! Kept me amused for hours, you know? Here, Zaphod, catch. You salvaged the golden bale from the wreckage of the lock? Hey, the heart of the heart of gold. Thought you'd want the infinite improbability drive working again. I don't know how to thank you, monkey man. Don't mention it. I won't. Gratitude is such an uncool reflex. I never developed it. I only picked it up because it was lying next to something of value to me. A handful of black dust. <gasps> the remains of the wooden pillar. Reduced to ashes again, I'm afraid. But a valued keepsake for an Englishman who once loved his cricket. Hey, old man, I hear this ship can move a bit, so before all this risky stuff starts, how would you like to zip me back to mine? You will not help us. I'd love to stay and save the galaxy, but I have the mother and father of a pair of headaches, and I feel the patter of tiny headaches on the way. But next time it needs saving, I'm your guy. Bye. Unbelievable. Hey, Trillion Baby. Yes? You want to come? Heart of gold, excitement, adventure, really wild things, and 49% of the bathroom. No. I'm going with them. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has listed the Heart of Gold as the fastest ship ever to cross the awe-inspiringly vast interstellar distances involved in meaningful space travel. However, having returned Zaphod Beeblebrox to the Heart of Gold, and leaving him with a sense that his popularity has diminished in direct proportion to his urge for self-preservation, the Starship Bistromath races back to Cricket, logging speeds in excess of 10 to the power of 17,000 R on the more open stretches. R in this case is a velocity measure, defined as a reasonable speed of travel that is consistent with health, mental well-being, and not being more than, say, five minutes late. It is therefore an almost infinitely variable figure according to circumstances, since the first two factors vary not only with speed taken as an absolute, but also with awareness of the third factor. Unless handled with tranquility, this equation can result in considerable stress, ulcers, and even death. Thus, 10 to the power of 17,000 R is not a fixed velocity, but it is clearly far too fast which means that Arthur Dent quickly finds himself once more upon the surface of the planet Cricket, with the important difference that this time he and his companions are not experiencing an informational illusion, but reality. This is Cricket itself, and they're standing on it. The strong grass under their feet is real. The heady fragrances from the trees too are real. The night is real night. This is Cricket the place that could not countenance the existence of any other place, whose charming, delightful, intelligent inhabitants would react with fear, savagery, and pathological hate when confronted with anyone not their own. Possibly the most dangerous place in the galaxy for anyone who isn't a cricketer to stand. Hey, watch where you're pointing that zap gun. Sorry. You'll have my eye out. Nice of Zaphod to let us have them. And below cost price. Yeah. Mad, really. I mean, how can he afford to sell guns below cost? Oh, he sells a lot of them. Oh, right. Shame we couldn't take his Jujanta 200 superchromatic peril-sensitive sunglasses as well. Peril-sensitive? Yeah, they're designed to help people develop a relaxed attitude to danger. At the first hint of trouble, they turn totally black and prevent you from seeing anything that might alarm you. It's a bit late for that, I'm afraid. Remember the informational illusion? Mm. How black the night sky of cricket was. Yeah. 
Well, look at it now. Mm. Hundreds of spaceships and big grey buildings just hanging up there. War zones and robot zones floating in nilo-grav fields. The planet Cricket has retained its pleasant green pastoral character, but the space around it reflects a sustained bout of aggressive military spending. Trillion? Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Uh, thinking. Do you always breathe like that when you're thinking? I wasn't aware that I was breathing. That's what worried me. I think I know... Shh. They're coming! Nobody's singing songs this time. This time they've seen us! Trillion, your safety catch is on, by the way. Trillion? What? What's up there? Has it occurred to anyone? Hello? Excuse me? Are you... Aliens? Who needs to be of service? Oh, computer! Thank you. Hi there! Any of your service? I'm gagged and with fully functioning improbability drive. Whatever. Open the all frequencies emergency channel. Oh, that's for emergencies only. Are you sure you're experiencing an emergency? This okay. is an emergency, screen face. Now open the channel. Okay, okay. Just doing my job, buddy. Emergency dispatch. This is Zafar Bebelrocks. You like a drink, right? Uh, this is an emergency, fella. The worst kind. I'm fresh out of olives. Now, go take a ride on a comet. Mm. Computer. Hi there. What was my last score on Grand Theft Cosmo? You scored three points, big guy. Championship score to beat is 7,597,200. Yeah, okay, okay. Feed my score and that other one into the guidance system. Then hit maximum acceleration. Consider it hit. Want to fasten your safety straps? Nah, thrill me. You got it! Tell us, alien brother, do you know anything about something called the, uh, uh balance of nature? Yeah. Why? It's just something we heard about. Um, probably nothing important. Oh, well, uh, I suppose we'd better kill you then. Uh, that is, unless there's anything you want to chat about? We're worried, you see, about this plan of universal destruction. Vis-a-vis -vis the, um... Balance of nature. Yeah. Only it, it seems to us <laughs> that if the whole of the rest of the universe is destroyed, it will somehow upset the... Balance uh, of... Things. We're quite keen on ecology, you see. And sport. Well, no, mostly sport. <laughs> you, you see, um, some of us... Uh, really uh, you know, well, no, some of us are, are quite keen to have sporting links with the rest of the galaxy. The galaxy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, though I can see the argument about keeping sport out of politics, if we want to have sporting links with the rest of the galaxy, then it's probably a mistake to destroy it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and indeed the rest of the universe, <laughs> which is... What seems to be the idea now? What? what uh, the. Well, uh. Hmm. Interesting idea. Let's you and me talk about it. Hmm? Really? Tell me. Um. Well, we we we, we have to be alone. I, I think. Hmm. Come on then. Uh, excuse us, everybody. See ya. Really? Don't be too long about it. Then can we kill them? Okay. 
Now you can tell me. Yeah, right. Well, um, we have this barn, you see. It's just a little barn. I know. You do? Yes. Honestly, it's a very, very little barn. I know. Um, but they say, they say it can destroy everything that exists, and we have to do that. You see, I, I think. Will we be alone? I mean, we don't know. I, seems to be our function, though. Whatever that means. <laughs> oh, hey, hey, hey! It's all right. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. Really? Oh, don't suck your thumb. Listen, I want you to do something for me. Oh, sorry. I just realised what I was going to say. I was actually going to say, take me to your leader. <laughs> Me to your leader up there. <gasps> oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, very good. <laughs> How did you know the leaders are up there? Full of hidden shallows, that girl. Arthur, what are you peering at? I could well be losing my mind, but don't you think that tiny pinprick of a spaceship up there looks remarkably like the heart of gold? Beeblebrox's ship has just entered the atmosphere. The robot war zones, to be precise. What's he doing up there? Let's hope it's something quick. I don't like the way these people are smiling at us. With nerves of titanium tip titanium, Seyfart Beeblebrox crosses the narrow steel gangway over a twenty thousand foot drop. Like the hell of a guy he is, reasoning that he might as well live up to his reputation as pee all over it. Caution. Enter security access code. System accessed. Look out, cricket robots. I've got a zap gun, a pair of hangovers, and two bad consciences. Battlecruiser Strider X. Culture section. Please do not touch the exhibit. I'm guessing the heaviest battlecruiser is where the action is. Wow. That is one wrecked spacecraft. Welcome, friends, to Battlecruiser Stridorax, our most lethal vessel. Yeah, right. And home of a historical artifact which inspired us, the people of Cricket, to leap from our planet's early bombs to discover the horror beyond the grave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the ship that started the whole business off, right? Wrong. Very wrong. Oh. Some Zeeb might think this was real starship wreckage if they'd never seen any before. This is like some half-finished self-build cut away to give those bozos a blueprint to copy. But who would want to unleash them on the galaxy? What would be in it for them? Why are my heads asking each other rhetorical questions? Oh, were they rhetorical? Uh-oh. Time to get scarce in a hurry. Maintenance duct. Perfect. Well, sir, I, I think... Well, what? Uh, well, sir, I, I think that uh, maybe now is the, the, the right time that we should uh, perhaps consider phasing them out of the war effort uh, now that we have the supernova bomb. What are you talking about? Well, in the very short time since we were released from the envelope... Get to the point, soldier. The robots, sir. The, the robots aren't enjoying it, sir. Enjoying what? The war, sir. They're not enjoying the war. It seems to be getting them down. 
getting them down. Yeah, there's a certain world weariness about them, or, or perhaps I should say universe weariness about them, sir. If there's anything worse than a commander who gossips, it's two commanders who gossip. They lack spunk. Like what? Oomph, sir. Oomph. Oomph? Oomph, yeah, uh, oomph. Uh, they, they like spunk, they like oomph, they like... Uh, what in the name of cricket are you talking about? Well, well, in the very few skirmishes they've had recently, it seems that they go in a battle, they raise their weapons to fire, and suddenly think, why bother? I see. And uh, they... Holy Belgium, how much longer? And then, what do they do? Quadratic equations, mainly, sir. Uh, uh, fiendishly difficult ones, by all accounts, sir, but, um... Whoever heard of a robot sunken? Yes, sir. What? Thank you for visiting. <sighs> Thanks, Sock, for that. Oh, hey. What? Marvin? I can see by infrared how I What does Marvin's reappearance forebode in these and subsequent troubled times? How will Trillian convince the elders of cricket to grow up? And will Arthur Dent find time to get his dressing gown laundered? The loose ends await tying up in the final part of this tertiary phase of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, William Franklin was the book. Simon Jones played Arthur Dent, Geoffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect, Mark Wing-Davy, Seyfard Beeblebrox, Susan Sheridan, Trillian, Stephen Moore, Marvin, Dominic Hawksley, the cricket commander, and Richard Griffiths was Slarty Bartfast. Roger Gregg played Eddie, Bob Golding, the dispatcher, and Mike Fenton-Stevens and Philip Pope were most of the population of cricket. The announcer was John Marsh. The surround mix was by Paul Dealey, and the live FX by Ken Humphrey. The script editor was John Langdon, and the music was by Paul Wicks-Wickins. The production assistants were Laura Harris and Joe Wheeler. The programme was adapted, directed and co-produced by Dirk Maggs. The producers were Helen Chatwell and Bruce Hyman and it was an above-the-title production for BBC Radio 4. This week's programme was brought to you by the letters F, Gamma and the hexadecimal number 3 cosine D bracket to the power of 8. Uh, sorry, 9. No, 8. Uh, actually, can I get back to you? Meanwhile... Here's some music. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams Tertiary Phase Coincidence is a subject upon which the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is dismissive. This is unsurprising because a universe of such infinite possibility, and indeed a fair degree of improbability, is a virtually limitless playground for the laws of cause and effect. 
Consequently, the strangest things can, and more often than not do, happen. And thus the legal department of the Megadodo Publishing Corporation has slipped in a caveat to the effect that a publication which relies so heavily on unsolicited contributions from strangers who wander into the editorial department during its near-permanent lunch hour is not in a position to verify the claims made in all or any of its articles. So on your own heads be it. Thus it seems that the game known as cricket, with a C, played on earth in the last three or four centuries before its destruction, was not unconnected to a series of interplanetary wars fought ten billion years previously on the opposite side of the galaxy. Certainly the trophy known as the Ashes was a vital part of that distant and unfinished story which is why the ashes are still wrapped in a grubby handkerchief in the pocket of Arthur Dent's even grubbier dressing gown as he waits with Ford Prefect and Slarty Bartfast for death or deliverance on the surface of the planet Cricket, with a K. It is at this point that the discomfort caused by gripping a heavy firearm is no longer something that Arthur can keep to himself. Ford, this gun's giving me cramp. It's not as if we stand a chance when these people decide to rush us. Yeah, well, we can take a few of them with us if they do. I'd love to wipe those vapid smiles off a few faces. <laughs> patience, patience. Trillian is negotiating with their leaders, and Beeblebrox is up there somewhere. He may have a plan of his own. Comrades, there is still hope that the universe can be saved. Not much of one, though, I have to say. And for this, we're relying on Zaphod. Sucking fartworks, I need a drink. Uh, would you like a glass of water, brother, before we kill you? I will Maybe later. Thanks. Keep back. According to the Vogon companion to modern intergalactic hostility, the region of the galaxy in which our protagonists find themselves has had a history of violence longer than an immortal's memory. Children still shiver open-mouthed at tales of Haktar, the vast space-born computer who designed a bomb capable of destroying the universe in one huge supernova, and of the hostile people of Cricket, but enough of them has been discussed in earlier editions. That was then, this is now. Zaphod Beeblebrox has discovered the Cricket with a K, Commanders with a C, possess the supernova bomb of legend and are intending, reluctantly but firmly, to use it. He has also discovered that the Cricket War robots have begun to suffer bouts of unexplained depression, and this, as he will undoubtedly also discover, is no coincidence. Now I lay me down to sleep, try to count electric sheep. Marvin? Sweet dream wishes you can Marvin! You moody metal mutant! It's me! I might have known. Just don't globber at me. Hey. The Hitchhiker's Guide describes globbering as the noise made by a live, swamp-dwelling mattress that is deeply moved by a story of personal tragedy. The word can also, according to the ultra-complete Maxi-Megalon Dictionary of Every Language Ever, mean the noise made by the Lord High Sandbalag of Hollop on discovering that he's forgotten his wife's birthday for the second year running. Since there was only ever one Lord High Sandbalag of Hollop and he never married, the word is only ever used in a negative or speculative sense. 
and there is an ever-increasing body of opinion which holds that the ultra-complete Maxi-Megalon dictionary is not worth the fleet of lorries it takes to cart its micro-stored edition around in. Strangely enough, the dictionary omits the word floopily, which simply means in the manner of something which is floopy. Hey, great to see you, kid! High 15! Oh! Hey, was that you singing so floopily? I'm in particularly scintillating form at the moment. You're alone, then. Pain and misery are my only companions. And vast intelligence, of course. And infinite sorrow, come to think of it, which I will long before you. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, where do you fit into all this? Through this interface to these electrodes here, the cricket robots which salvaged me from the mattress swamps of Squanchella Zeta recognized my gigantic intelligence and the use to which I could put it. My brain has been harnessed to the central intelligence core of the cricket war computer. You okay with that? I'm not enjoying the experience, and neither is the computer. I think I know how it feels. Of course, the mere coordination of an entire planet's military strategy is taking up only a tiny part of my formidable mind. The rest of me has become extremely bored, so I have taken to composing short, dolorous ditties and saving your life. You're the reason the robots didn't kill me? Both times? Well... Three times now. What? Intruder. Kill on sight. Whoa! Hold it, dude! You don't want to start shooting me? I know. I'm far too depressed to pull the trigger now. Marlin? Was that you? Why stop now, just when I'm hating it? You must have a terrific outlook on life. Don't. Talk to me about outlooks. Hey, stay cool, baby. You're doing a great job. Which means, I suppose, that you're not going to release me or anything like that. Kid, you know I'd love to. But you're working so well. I gotta I got find Trillion and the guys. Any ideas? I mean, I got a whole planet to choose from. Could take a while. They are very close. You can monitor them from here. Watch the screen. So you have been totally manipulated. Where's that? The council chamber of the elders of cricket. Just think about it. Your friend has minutes to talk them out of unleashing the bomb. Your history is just a series of freakishly improbable events. And having served my time on the Heart of Gold, I know an improbable event when it materializes a six-foot stuffed pink aubergine in my shower cubicle. Your complete isolation from the galaxy was freakish for a start. Right out on the very edge, with a dust cloud around you. Then this spaceship that crash-landed on your planet. Oh, that's really likely, isn't it? Alien female. Although it is very kind of you What to... are the odds against it intersecting perfectly with the orbit of the one planet in the galaxy that would be totally traumatized to learn that it wasn't alone? It's a setup. The spaceship was just a cleverly made fake. She's right, I've seen it. It's a fake. How depressingly predictable. Someone was feeding you what you needed to know. But we didn't Of course you didn't realize it was going on. This is exactly my point. You never realized anything at all. Like this supernova bomb. How do you know about that? I used scientific deduction. 
which is more than you have done. If you were bright enough to invent something that brilliant, you'd have worked out that it would take you with it as well. What is this bomb thing anyway? The supernova bomb. It's a very small bomb. Yeah? That could destroy the universe if activated. Good idea, if you ask me. So where is it? On the pillar standing between the elders and Trillion. Top of the screen. On command, the cricket robot next to Trillion will detonate it with his war club. I'm stupid that I doubt, I very much doubt, that you've been able to build the bomb properly without any help from Haktar for the last five years. Who's this Haktar guy? The brains of the outfit. I feel sorry for him already. Young lady, you have had your say in this matter. But as an alien life form, your deductions are ineluctably flawed. We have no alternative, therefore, but to carry out our plans. No! Robot, do your duty. Marvin! Nothing I can do. The robot's on an independent circuit. Detonate the bomb. Detonate the bomb. Wait! Wait! Waiting. You're, you're very different from the people you rule on the ground. Um, you've spent all your lives up here, where the atmosphere is thinner. You're more vulnerable to influences from beyond. R radiation, dust particles. The people don't want you to do this. Why don't you check with them first? Detonate the bomb. Detonate the bomb. Oh. <gasps> Oops. Okay, so you've got a nasty hole in your wall. If that bomb's so brilliant, why didn't it go off? It is brilliant, but they aren't. They've spent the last five years building it and they still haven't got it right. They're as stupid as any other organic life form. I hate them. Influences from beyond. Radiation. Dust particles. Elders! Elders of Cricket! I need transportation! I need my friends! And I need them now! But we need a hug. Probability, one to one. We have normality. Deal with it. I do miss the aroma of fresh pesto in a starship. Come on, Arthur. You clean that dressing gown. I miss being connected to a war computer about as much as I miss the pain I feel in all the diodes down my left-hand side. Which is not at all. We're in position at the dust cloud perimeter, folks. Ready. We should have drawn straws. Hey, uncool and potentially risky. Suppose I drew the short one. How do we know there's anything out there apart from a cloud of black dust? I could tell you if you asked me politely, which you wouldn't. Please, Marvin. <laughs> a pocket of pseudo-gravity has opened around the ship with an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere. We're being invited here. There's a very powerful intelligence at work. Like you'd notice. Eddie? Airlock open, folks! The last time I walked out of an airlock in deep space, the Vogons were pushing me. I can't believe I volunteered to do it again. Look, Trisha, 
If anything happens to us... Listen! I just... I can't hear anything. So, the pressure here is equal to the cabin pressure in the heart of gold. And that suggests you're right about this? I hope so. Haktar? Mm. Uh, uh, Haktar! Mm. I would like you to meet my friend, Arthur Dent. <clears throat> I, I wanted to go off with the Thunder God. But he stopped me, uh, and I really appreciate that. He made me realize where my affections really lay. Oh, and um, is that actually relevant right now? I'm not sure. Hello? Hector? Won't you both come out? I promise that you're perfectly safe. By which people usually mean we're not. Come on, Arthur. But it's empty space. Have faith. I do. I also have fear and a propensity to bruising. I have nothing to offer you by way of hospitality but tricks of the light. It is possible to be comfortable with tricks of the light, though, if that is all you have. Good grief. It's a sofa. The sofa. The one that Ford and I escaped from prehistoric Earth on. Why does the universe keep doing these insanely bewildering things to me? Please, make yourselves comfortable. Oh, yes, thank you. It's like an old friend. <laughs> and I really must congratulate you on the accuracy of your deductions. Well, I didn't deduce anything myself. I'm just here because I'm sort of interested in life, the universe, and everything. That is something in which I, too have an interest. Well, we should have a chat about it sometime. Over a cup of tea. <laughs> Impressive. I'll be mother then, shall I? Oh. I'm afraid the tea table is just a trick of the light. Uh, Hector, if the universe interests you so much, why do you feel you have to destroy it? Oh, dear. Perhaps a psychiatrist's couch would have served us better. Oh, I think I preferred the sofa. Thank you. Can you construct real things, too? I, I mean, solid objects. Ah, uh, you are thinking of the spaceship. Yes, I can. But it takes enormous effort and time. All I can do in my particle state, you see, is encourage and suggest. Tiny pieces of space debris, a few molecules here, a few hydrogen atoms there. I encourage them together. I can tease them into shape, but it takes many eons. So, did you make the wrecked spacecraft that crashed on Cricket? It seemed the best thing to do. Best? I repented, you see, for sabotaging my own design for the Silastic armor fiends. It was not my place to make such decisions. I was created to fulfill a function, and I failed in it. I negated my own existence. Go on. I deliberately... Nurture the planet of Cricket till they would arrive at the same state of mind as the people who built me and require of me the design of the bomb 
I failed to make for the first time. I wrapped myself around the planet and coddled it. Under the influence of events I was able to generate, they learned to hate like maniacs. Mind you, I had to make them live in the sky. On the ground, my influences were too weak. You've caused the deaths of millions. When they were locked away from me in the envelope of slow time, their responses became very confused, and they were unable to manage. Which is why their bomb was a dud. I was only trying to fulfill my function. Nothing else? Well, there was also the little matter of revenge. Of course, I was pulverized, then left in a crippled and semi-impotent state for billions of years. And there's nothing quite like wiping out the universe to get your point across. You know what we have to do? Yes, you're going to disperse me. This is your function, to destroy my consciousness. Well, be my guest. After all these years, all I crave is oblivion. If I haven't already fulfilled my function, then it's too late. Data ends. Thank you. Arthur? And good night. The atmosphere pocket is dissipating. And the sofa's disappearing. John! Eddie, the vibration field. Quickly! No problem! That should take care of the dust cloud. Listen, I have fulfilled my it's Hector. I have fulfilled my I think he's glad to have the burden of existence lifted. Some people have all the luck. I have fulfilled my function. Well, that would appear to be that. Just about. Just about? I think we should take the ashes back to Lords. I feel that very strongly. Some charred bits of cricket stump. Why? It's a matter of national pride. I'm not sure you'd understand. Are you proposing the injudicious use of time travel? Homesick monkey man. Mm. If we give them back moments after they were stolen, no one will be any the wiser. Why bother? The Earth gets blown up a day later, no matter what you do. It just seems important to do it. We'd only have to travel back a day or so in time. This is precisely the sort of gratuitous and irresponsible mucking about that the campaign for real time is trying to put a stop to. Aha. Uh -huh. But you try and explain that to the MCC. I won't be a party to it. Kindly return me to the Starship Bistro Mouth at once. Oh, okay, okay, old man. Keep your beard on. We'll drop you off. You and the guy I picked up on the way over. What guy? Says his name is Prack. He's on the run from the Argabuthon Witness Protection Program. Prack? The Prack. He keeps talking non-stop. Doesn't make much sense. Trillian, are you all right? It was in the sidereal Daily Mention, a big story. 
He wouldn't give evidence at some trial, so they administered a new truth drug just when the cricket robots broke in and stole the Argabooth on Scepter of Justice. Uh, the Perspex Pillar of Science. In the chaos, the bailiff accidentally gave Prack ten times the maximum dose. Once the trial resumed, they made the worst request imaginable of someone in Prack's condition. They asked him to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And he told it. For all they know, he's still telling it. Strange, terrible things. Things that would drive you mad. Yeah, if a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, omniscience must be lethal. But if he knows all truth, then presumably he'd know what the ultimate question to the ultimate answer is. It's always bothered me that we never found out. Yeah? Well, it's your call. No! Let's ask him. Thanks, Zarquan, the whole soundproof. This motor mouth can really ratchet. Poor thing. Door. Open. My pleasure to allow you admittance to the home. Uh, hello? Oh, hello. Do you, uh, do you have a cigarette? Sorry, no. <laughs> Hi, pal. What's going on? <laughs> nothing. Oh. We thought you'd be still telling the truth. Whole and nothing but. Oh, that? I was, but then I finished. <laughs> yeah, really? Oh, yeah. But not nearly as much of it as people imagine. Some of it is uh, pretty funny, though. <laughs> oh, blow <laughs> Tell me about it. Oh, I can't remember any of it now. I thought of writing some of it down, but then I thought, why bother? <laughs> hey, buddy. You okay? I'm not sure I haven't done myself an injury. <laughs> you remember none of it? Um, no. Oh, except most of the good bits were about frogs. Remember that? Oh, dear. Frogs were... You wouldn't believe some of the things about frogs. <laughs> Come on, let's go and find ourselves a frog. Boy, will I ever see them in a new light. <laughs> Nothing more profound. Now let's go and find a frog I can laugh at. Oh, a tadpole would... <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> Sorry, who are you? Uh, uh, my name is Trillian. Uh-huh. A Ford Prefect. Oh, yeah. And I huh? am Seyfard Beeblebrox. So what? Uh. <laughs> and what's this? Me? Oh, oh, my name's Arthur Dent. No kidding. Well, you're Arthur Dent? Well, the Arthur Dent. <laughs> Blimey! Are you? <laughs> you just leave the frog standing. <laughs> He's not well. The constant laughing's wrecked his body. Oh, you wanted to ask me something. How do you know that? Because it's true. Uh, well, I did have a question. Mm. Or rather, what I actually have is an answer. Mm. I wanted to know what the question was. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, the question I would like to know is the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Yeah. <laughs> All we know is that the answer is 42, mm. which is a little aggravating. Mm -hmm. 
42. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Oh, you didn't know. Yes, the question and the answer are mutually exclusive, I'm afraid. Knowledge of one logically precludes knowledge of the other. It is impossible that both can ever be known about in the same universe. Oh. (laughs) Except if it happened, it seems that the question and the answer would just cancel each other out. Oh, and and take the universe with them, which would then be replaced by something even more bizarrely inexplicable. It it, it is possible, of course, that this has already happened, but there is a certain amount of uncertainty about it. (laughs) There certainly is. I was just hoping there might have been some sort of reason. Well, actually, there is one other thing I can remember. (laughs) Apart from the frogs. (laughs) Later. What was it? Um, Oh, yes! God's last message to his creation. Would you like to know what it is? Um, Ford? Look, do you want to know about it or not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, all right. Well, if you're that interested, I, I suggest you go and look for it. It is written in 30-foot-high letters of fire on top of the Quintilus Quasgar Mountains in the land of Savor Biopstri on the planet Preliumtan, third out from the sun's arse in galactic sector QQ7 Active J Gamma. It is guarded by the majestic Vantracell of Lob. Which Sorry, it's, it's where? It is written in 30-foot-high letters of fire on top of the Quintilus Quasgar Mountains in the land of Sevor Bubstri on the planet Preliumtan. You might want to write this down. Third out... Sorry, th- which mountains? The Quintilus Quasgar Mountains in the land of Sevor Bubstri on the planet... Have you got a pencil? Me? Which land was that? I uh, didn't quite catch it. Sevor Bubstri on the planet... Sevor Bubstri? For heaven's sake... <laughs> Oh, poor thing. It was too much for him. Bummer. How about it, Arthur? Want to go in search of God's last message to his creation? Not just now, thanks. Fair enough. One of the many problems encountered in time travel is not that of accidentally becoming your own father or mother. There's no problem involved in becoming your own father or mother that a broad-minded and well-adjusted family can't cope with. There is also no problem about changing the course of history. The course of history does not change, because it all fits together like a jigsaw. All the important changes have happened before the things they were supposed to change, and it all sorts itself out in the end. The major problem posed by time travel is quite simply one of grammar. And the main work to consult in this matter is Dr. Dan Street mentioner's Time Traveller's Handbook of 1001 Tenth Formations. It tells, for instance, how to describe something that was about to happen to you in the past before you time jump forward a couple of days in order to avoid it. The event will be described differently according to whether you're talking about it from the standpoint of your own natural time, from a time in the further future, or a time in the further past which is further complicated by the possibility of conducting conversations whilst you're actually travelling from one time to another with the intention of becoming your own father or mother. Street Mentioner's Handbook is as exhaustive as it is exhausting. But as no reader has yet been known to get as far as the future semi-conditionally modified sub-inverted plagal past subjunctive intentional without giving up, in later editions of the book all the pages beyond this point have been left blank to save on printing costs. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy skips lightly over this tangle of academic abstraction, pausing only to note that the term future perfect has been abandoned, since it will have been discovered not to be. How's that?
Alfred, the Supernatural Brigade are certainly out in force here at Lord's today. I don't know what is going off. You never got lethal white robots setting fire to the stands at a Yorkshire match, Henry. Not in my day, and certainly not without a stiff argument from the groundsmen. Too true, too true. The pitch here is blackened, lightly smoking towards square leg, and two men have just materialised on the pitch. Good Lord, I think I'm having a déjà vu. Then I'll have a pint if you're buying. Hey, and for listeners just joining us for today's play, ten bat-wielding robots have returned to their spaceship, leaving behind them a scene of unutterable chaos. Hello? Excuse me? There's nothing to worry about. I have the ashes. They're safe in this bag. I don't think you have their attention. I have also helped save the universe. You'd think that'd be a crowd pleaser. Not anymore. Excuse me, officer. What seems to be the problem? The ashes. I've got them. They were stolen by the white robots a moment ago. They were part of the key to the slow time envelope, you see, and, well, you can guess the rest. The point is, I've got them, and where should I put them? Hmm? I could tell you where to put them, son. I'm on duty. Pillock. Is no one interested? Shall we go now? I suppose. No. Hang on. This is Lord's Cricket Ground, yes? What's left of it? When I was a boy, I loved cricket. Can we go now? And I always dreamed, stupidly, I know, that one day I would bowl at Lord's. And as I still have the ball I caught last time we were here, mm. oh, and one of the batsmen is still standing at the crease. Mm. Would anyone mind if I... OK, get on with it. I'll be over there, the bored-looking one. You're a pal. <laughs> OK, if I bowl you one. Yes. Arthur, what are you doing? Polishing. Shiny enough, surely. The trousers, I mean. Quiet, Ford. I'm going into my run-up. Right. Arthur. Pitch down the lakeside. Arthur, that's not an England batsman. It's a cricket robot. Line and length. That's not a cricket ball. It's a supernova bomb, and I bet it's not a dud either. I have made... A few things. What's this done? Hector! Arthur! Stop! I can't. Something's making me run. I have to bowl at the robot. I have fulfilled my function. How good were you at cricket? Dreadful! Great arm over and... Too late! Right! All yours, Ford! Yes! Well held! Excuse me, you're back. May I? <coughs> and Bent breaks his duck as the robot's head soars over the boundary for six. Nice stroke. Not bad, off the back foot. Right. Do we have time for tea? That rather depends what you mean. Honk brown liquidy stuff? On what you mean by time. If you mean time, as in linear units yet to elapse before our inevitable mortality, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But if you meant time, as in the metaphysical bond between space and reality, mm -hmm. say, here, and the Vogon's imminent arrival, oh that's yeah. several other things. What, apart from a refreshing drink and a hot bath, does the future hold for Arthur Dent? Will his budding relationship with Trillian bear fruit? Can he ever return to the life he left behind on Earth? And who will attempt to assassinate him when he visits Stavromula Beta? All these questions must be answered in the free upgrade 
which forms the next series of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Suppose it also depends what we mean by tea. Precisely. Mm. You know what caterers are. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting entry under Tannin in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm. In the last part of this series of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, William Franklin was the book. Simon Jones played Arthur Dent, Jeffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect, Mark Wing Davies, Aphod Bieberbrox, Susan Sheridan, Trillium, Stephen Moore, Marvin, Dominic Hawksley, the elder of cricket, and Richard Griffiths was Slarty Bartfast. Roger Gregg played Eddie, Bob Golding, the cricket civilian, Toby Longworth, Wowbagger, and Henry Blofeld and Fred Truman were themselves. Chris Langham played Prack, and Leslie Phillips was Hector. The announcer was John Marsh. The surround mix was by Paul Dealey, and the live FX by Ken Humphrey. The script editor was John Langdon, and the music was by Paul Wicks Wickens. The production assistants were Laura Harris and Joe Wheeler. The programme was adapted, directed, and co-produced by Dirk Maggs. The producers were Helen Chatwell and Bruce Hyman, and it was an above-the-title production for BBC Radio 4. Wait a minute. Oh, what now? Suffering Zarquan, and what planet are you from? Shut up, mortal. I'll get to you later. Arthur Dent. Arthur Philip Dent. Yes. You are a... Yes. You're a... I've done you before, haven't I? Yes. Oh, well, that's my afternoon, knackered. The preceding programme contains violent scenes of a graphic nature which may cause offence. Time travellers of a nervous disposition may like to consider listening to something else for the past half hour. <laughs>